Drum roll, Drew. It's time <laughs> to drop. Drop. <laughs> Jesus Christ. To drop the damn needle. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, and on the kill taker, man, it's weird. This is a lot of people's favorite Fugazi record. Some days it's mine, some days it's not, but it is a dark proposition, my friend. Just dark in, in tone and in uh, vibe and so many ways. It's also very, um, it's a little bit fatiguing, you know. Yeah, I, I, and it sounds so fatigued as well. Like it's it's high energy, but there's this sense, especially in the Ian songs, I feel, of not quite world weariness, but road weariness, like of like, fuck, we're still in this. There's a lot to be done. It's not a give up. It's not a overwhelm. It's just a like a, a tiredness of like keeping up the fight kind of vibe. Yeah, I think Rob, so Rob Sheffield, we were talking about his intro to the Joe Gross book. Yeah, which is amazing. Uh, which is super well written, better written than the rest of the book, in my opinion. Um, Me too. But he he writes in in his intro, uh, the eruption of waiting room from their EP had settled into a less dramatic groove. It turned into the grind of a long running, hard working band. It's music that asked nothing from the audience yet demanded everything, which I think gets at what you were talking about. That there's a oh a, a weariness. And a kind of sense of like being in it for the long haul that comes through this record. Uh, yeah. And and I uh, think that's both potentially internally as a band, but also more in the sense of the lens of them looking out at the world and the city they're in, much less the world they're in, of like, Jesus Christ, now we know even more. And now we have even more to fight against and to build and to deal with, you know? Yeah, it's also like being it's like being a punk still, having a punk outlook on the world, but being more of a grown up 
and like what is what does it mean to be a punk as an adult versus a punk as a teenager where it's all just like you know fuck you it's it's less of the finger pointing uh and it's the more it's much more kind of thoughtful and nuanced and and troubled by what mm-hmm. it's what its preoccupations are thematically yeah uh, and, yeah and, and, and more know, sense of scale yeah right there's a sense of dynamic range on this record that is you know they're continuing to grow in that regard as a band well yeah i mean musically and also lyrically but yeah i and i wanted to read the, <laughs> the first quote from the intro to the gross book but which the is Rob funny because which is also by a gross it's by terry gross from her interview with Gee. but it's kind of funny because it's kind of the i guess it's talking about the punk spirit but it's ironic just in the sense that right in, at this point in time the mainstream was cannibalizing and burning in the way a, a, a child does with a magnifying glass the ant of the underground scene so anyway i still i love this quote so i have to throw it out there and more about the true spirit of punk so and it was an offhand remark he is so amazing at those so terry gross says a lot of people think of punk as having ended a few years ago and yet you're still playing music that comes out of that tradition and he replies with yeah we're like the shakers we're doing the forgotten dance it's like poetry right there yeah it's kind of like a uh there's a there's a famous play called Wojtek that was made into a film by Werner Herzog. So it's a German play from the 19th century. And there's a scene where the main character is like, got his ear pressed to the ground. And he's like talking to his friend and he's like, Shh, you know, do you hear that? It's the vibrations of the earth. Like this idea that there's like a secret, mm-hmm. a secret vibration or a secret tremor that is happening on a subterranean level that you have to train yourself to hear. And I think that there's a sense not to get too poetic, but there's a sense in this record of learning to see the world in those ways. Uh, I mean, you know, the last song on Steady Diet is Keep Your Eyes Open, right? So this is kind yeah. of like... That's the rallying it? call, and then this is the, all right, you said you were going to come on board. This is what we're in for. This is the trenches here. And it is. It's a whole sound world, and it's a whole kind of ideal world that you have to enter into. It's it's a very immersive record in that way, where it's it's kind of surrounding you with all these things and overwhelming you with all these things it's like a wormhole that you have to emerge from at the end of listening to it mm-hmm. and like you said it's demanding but not without without immense rewards so yeah i mean and it's the sound of a band they do it with every record when i really when when you really think about it but it, it's very evident on this one reacting to one the sound of the last record reacting to their legacy of sound and what people have come to know of their and think of their formula and even their sonics so it's them bucking against comfort and uh, against uh, routine and trying to break new ground and terrain as well as staying committed to the same core values ideals and band vision yeah, but I also love just like the fact that this is a big, loud guitar record, you know, and like it is. Well, it's the most dissonant Fugazi record ever. Right. It, yeah. It's like abrasive. It's noisy, mm-hmm. but it's also like uh, you know, like I, I think Ted nicely in the in the Joe Gross book compares them to Deep Purple on the on the lead off track. There's a kind of arena scale where there's a massive scale, 
You're like shaking your head at me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now but I know I mean, something I'm going to talk to Joe Gross about next. I mean, uh, talk to Ted nicely. Uh, Ted nicely about when I talk. Yeah, to he him. says facet squared is like their deep purple moment. You know, yeah, he does often compares them to classic rock bands, which is interesting. But like, it's not a classic rock record at all. No, um, no. Maybe just in structure of the sequencing in the the flow and right. the ebb and flow of the record that's about it but it is it's huge sounding i guess mm -hmm. is what i'm trying to get at it's sort of like for your own special sweetheart and pony express the other ted nicely classic records that he produced it's it sounds really big and it's noisy and abrasive but there's like a cleanness to it there's a not a slickness to it necessarily but there's a kind of a, a scale and a, a volume a bombast a weight yeah, yeah right it's and a weight operatic, right. operatic at times Sure, uh, and I mean, so I, in so diff in such a different way than his other production with them, even so different than the first record. I mean, you totally. couldn't get more different, and you couldn't even get more different than uh, Repeater. I mean, it's there's maybe some hints of, on Repeater of what could go into this territory, but not not so much. So yeah, but let's let's do it. Let's get into this because we got a lot of songs to get through here. So let's start it off with the opening track, which. I'll just say right away, never was my favorite. A lot of people love it. Yeah, I'll talk about why, but let's let's I want to hear the counter argument first so you can tell me why why it's a great. I don't think it's a bad song, but tell me why I should consider it godlike. Well, I mean, <laughs> simply one of the greatest opening tracks to any record I can think of, the way it builds. Waiting room? Um, I I kind of prefer this over waiting room. I got to say like waiting room is waiting room is, is waiting room, right? It's a, it's a hugely famous song, but there, you know, this it's actually structured slightly similarly where there's a quiet kind of intro and then an eruption into this like ride of the Valkyrie style uh, guitar riff that comes galloping in from Guy. And, you know, Ian toggling that the kill switch on his guitar, creating that Morse code effect. And then the way Guy's, guitars come in it just kills me every time i think they both are doing it i think it's more than one guitar doing the toggle switch oh uh, maybe it's... i'm just going off of like some of the live videos that i've seen oh, okay. where it's just yeah. doing doing the toggling and um, uh w what's yeah. weird to me my favorite part musically of this song is the intro but it's a little frustrating to me as well because as a musician i'm paying attention to these things like it's three parts three different parts is the intro it's not just one or two things it's like they have three different intros before they get into the song there's a little the like you said the kind of morse code type of guitar toggle stuff which is awesome then then the uh then Baseline. when the, the bass comes in with that brand new tone for joe that like very mean kind of uh deeper low end aggressive tone is like fuck yeah then it goes away again and you've just got the guitar by itself doing another intro doing the main riff by itself before it jumps into the song and all that's great even though it's weird that any one of those would have been fine by themselves but they decide to keep changing it well it's a very it's a very jesus lizardy bass tone it's a very kind of oh like yeah 90s like thick nasty mean yep. uh, sounding bass um I mean, I'm sure that's why they wanted to work with Albini was because of the way those Jesus listed records sounded. Potentially. Um, we'll see. Potentially. 
we'll uh, see in a couple hours when the interview comes <laughs> but, but I, I don't know i think like i think it like what it does is it creates an ominous feeling and then it goes away and it's well, it's, like disor- it's purposefully disorienting that's for sure right and then and then when the big guitar riff comes in it's like bombs dropping you know and obviously it's i i always hear like lasers and then bombs from the first gulf war you know, oh, I mean, okay like, my, when you said my... lasers i thought i thought you were talking about some big rock show with no 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 I, I feel like i feel like the lasers of guns i feel uh-huh. like there's a militaristic uh-huh. landscape that it creates in my mind's yeah. eye when i hear the song well i like that you referenced keep your eyes open because this is kind of like picking up where keep your eyes open left off vibe wise and then that 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 section around two minutes and four seconds where he's playing the kind of tremolo guitar ratchet he does attention m- many many times on this record he does that kind of thing yeah which actually kind of is kind of like a jawbox device you know mm-hmm. jay robbins does something similar where he just cranks up the tension and tension and then it releases mm-hmm. um and then that scream by ian going when he screams yeah. touch the ground is one of my favorite ian screams so of all time this record is the beginning of my not loving everything Ian sings phase because I think it's it's hit and miss on here to my ears. Not saying it definitively because it's all subjective, but some of the moments on this song, but also on the whole album, are some of his most expressive, and I love those. But I feel like his tone on this song, he sounds tired. He sounds hoarse. He doesn't sound like the angry Ian of of yesterday. Before this was like so in your face and just like like uh jeff would say something like well just get your blood boiling or whatever <laughs> and it would it would whereas his voice on here feels kind of buried in the mix and he it, it sounds like he's just got back from tour and he's he's tired but he's going to play this song it doesn't feel like a call to action it feels like a you know i'm still in the fight motherfucker but not a like let's go fucking do this kind of thing <laughs> I guess I just like that sound. I mean, I I I I hear what you hear, but I don't I don't dislike it. I think that that bellow that kind of bellowing bellowing angry, is a good word, yeah. And like the sinewy, I feel like there's a new sinewy kind of vocal strain going on in his voice. Like he's a couple of years away from in the future, he will have a collapsed lung because of singing so incredibly hard for like 15 years straight. You know what I mean? So I feel like he's he's done some vocal damage to his vocal cords by this point and that's maybe what you're hearing is like just screaming like that so many nights in a row will inevitably do something to your voice well i mean look at even much smaller scale blake from jawbreaker totally i think having to get polyps removed from his throat from misusing it what i do like is and the song's grown on me i don't dislike it it's just a little bittersweet because it's the opening track and it's it's good i would have opened with something different if i was uh sequencing it but the uh once they do all come into that first groove the other day i was listening i was like oh it, it helped because it put it in context i could just feel and be back at one of those shows where they're playing either indoor or outdoor most likely outdoor on some kind of wobbly wooden stage and like everything's bouncing and there's steam in the air is this is this riffs going on and i'm like okay that's cool i could i can vibe with that so his singing i don't love it on this song but i do love the lyrics there's some of his 
this is where he found a little bit of his voice, his second phase of lyric writing and Fugazi, because he kind of tried it a bit on the last album to be more cryptic and to less successful means less successful results. But I think this song, the lyrics are very successful. Like they're a little poetic, a little cryptic, but they're very uh, evocative and, and you, you get the the feel of what he's talking about. It's not so just word salady. He is very much success, always been successful at it. I yeah. feel like, and I feel like Ian had to work at it to get there. And I feel like he's getting there on this one. Yeah, it's it's a series of kind of political philosophical aphorisms welded together. The lyrics is how I interpret it, you know. And it's not pointing the finger at you. There's no no. Yeah, it's not no a you song. Yeah, uh, I mean there are you songs on this record, but this one <laughs> right. It's, yeah, yes. Yeah. This one's much more about the nature of of nationalism and of of symbols that are used as a as a kind of mask for violence right yeah irony is the refuge of the educated always complaining but they never quit it's indicting of course you go to that line mr educated <laughs> well it's, it's it's not just indicting flags and flag waving but it's also no it's not liberalism you know and liberal irony so it's it's very really? multi-directional i think it's more i mean sure yes and i think that also that line is big because this is the beginning of Beck and of Nirvana and of in the pop culture and even Sonic Youth to that degree of being detached and ironic is the cool thing to be because it's you're guarded you're not uh, having to give anything of yourself you're not having to have skin in the game if you're ironic and you're you know privileged or what what have you so yeah yeah that, that's a great that's a great couplet you're right and irony you know ironic distance is something that allows you to be detached from your own moral obligations. Yeah, from yeah. the outcome of your actions. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. I think the lyrics are the lyrics are super strong and they're delivered for me in a very powerful way. Yeah, and he, yeah, exactly. I don't think we need to go more cuz we're just going to say the same things over, but it's <laughs> it's true. And there's more great lines in there, but folks know it or can look it up. It's a you know, we've we've talked about what it's about. It, it it's one of his strongest songs. I feel like on here. Well, and have you have you heard the Chad Clark theory of like Fugazi albums that they alternate the lead off tracks? That one album will lead off with an Ian song, and then the next album will lead off with a Gee song. I have not, but I, and I I'm always interested in those kind of theories. But I guarantee you, if I would have asked Gee about that, it's he would have denied it. Yeah. He would have yeah. denied it up and down. Because like, Red Medicine starts off with "Don't you want me?" or uh, "Don't you?" Yeah, uh, not "Don't you want me?" The human I was going to say, <laughs> "Do you like me?" Do you like me? <laughs> "Don't um, you want me, baby?" But there is a you know th this song this album ends with a Geese song, and it yeah. feels right to me that it begins with an Ian song. You know what they I mean? do that often though. I mean, oh, well yeah. they yeah. they didn't on Repeater, I guess, but they you know the first album starts that way, starts and ends that way. And one thing that I thought in in the conspiracy theory level was. I wondered about songwriting is I wondered, you know, a lot of times it's back and forth E and G song E and G, but there's two G's in a row. And I wonder if that was a conscious thing of like, hey, we don't want people thinking we're like Husker Du where we're where we have to have exactly equal songs or anything because we don't want to have that uh, artifice of equality. It's it's more of an organic thing. 
even though that would be a conscious decision that wouldn't be organic. <laughs> well, I think that track two on this record, it's a Gee song and it it perfectly fits. This is why Facet Squared should be the leadoff song because the one-two punch of public witness program coming in right on the heels of Facet Squared, yeah, yeah. I just think it like lays me out. Love it. I'm glad it lays you out. I... I'm not going to say anything critical about this record in case you <laughs> in case you didn't already know. Like I think every song, I think it's perfectly sequenced. I love every song on the record. It's hard All for right. me to find flaws. I, I think we're done here. <laughs> so that makes me bad cop. Yeah, good cop, bad cop. You'd make a good cop. I'd make a bad cop. Um, so yeah, public witness program. I even asked you about it, so we won't go. I won't go too far into the meaning, but you know, it's obviously not just about a public witness program because Guy never writes just about what the song title is, even though the so, some people probably literally thought it was, which would be weird. But musically and arrangement-wise, this song is pretty fucking phenomenal and and deceptively complex. Because it doesn't sound, it sounds like just a rager that just goes and stops. But, you know, there's all kinds of experimentation and little touches production wise and guitar wise and vocal wise all over it. It's got such momentum. Like, I, this would have been a great opening track if you asked me. And Guy's vocals, this is where he, right away out of the gate, you know, there's no hesitation. There's his vocals are so confident. They're, they're, and he uses them, uh, you know, we've talked on the show about people like Pete Stahl, the way he'll use kind of playful and uh, almost hip-hop-like uh, way of placing words and in inflections. And Guy does that in a different way. Like on here, it feels like he's kind of jabbing like a boxer with his with his phrasing of the lyrics. It's so good. But yeah, and I mean, it, this is the song... The first song's great, but this song is a song thing where it really starts to showcase Guy and Ian's ability to recontextualize rock guitar in mm-hmm. within a traditional song structure still. It's it's just got so much momentum. I know you're gonna talk about the sixties, so I won't do that yet. <laughs> and for me it sounds like a mix of some sixty sensibilities, but with uh some wire jacked up very uh astringent guitar yeah well i mean i noticed that on a lot of the geese songs on this record there's like what i call the gee chord and i <laughs> i haven't sat down with the guitar and figured it out but it's almost like it's a seventh chord or there's some kind of a dissonant note that he keeps on putting into these chords that is very distinctive and has like a it, it creates a sense of tension and dissonance and abrasiveness but then yeah as you said in terms of songwriting, and there's also something off kilter about the verse where I feel like there's a, a missing beat or like a syncopated beat, mm-hmm. the way that the guitar riff keeps on cycling around. But then it has a kind of like a mod pop 60s quality with like the hand claps that come in. Exactly. Uh, and the kind of like, it's not ironic. It's, 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 it's a sincere, I think, appreciation, but it adds a very interesting flavor because it's recontextualized in this as you said, post-wire, post-punk kind of a context. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and he even uh, says, I'm looking at the lyrics right now, and I didn't even realize he, uh, there's even a line that says, can I get a witness, a witness totally. with ears? <laughs> right. So it's like, right. 
Right, there's like a testify, testifying kind of like soul revival yeah. thing, but not in a Svenonius way. Where exactly. Like, <laughs> exactly. Like pastiche. Uh, and then, yeah, I just love that breakdown that comes in like a minute into the song with, with Joe's bass. And then the way Key's guitar starts playing that kind of spidery arpeggiated riff. And then the way Ian's guitars come in playing a different riff that sort of twines around it. Mm-hmm. Um, which which very they similar. do over and over. On yeah, this. it's very similar to what they do on Red Medicine with Bed for the Scraping and and Do You Like Me, but it's just like such that it's that classic Fugazi sound, and it's got like a real it's a real catchy jump number as they might say in the sixties. <laughs> you can dance to it. You can dance to it. That's right. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, uh, all the above. I I agree. It's like a, a shot of adrenaline, this song. And, you know, lyrically, like I said, I, I get him to talk a little bit about it. But to me, the besides barely being able to make heads or tails of it, all I could get is kind of maybe a sense of uh, attacking self-imposed acquiescence to a system that keeps you down or, or, or a self-imposed passivity or something. But it's very hard to dig out the... Uh, clear thread on this one for me how about well, you as as often on this record the geese songs to me they're a little bit like losing my religion which is like a breakup song that sounds like a political song and i feel like a lot of these songs are love songs that are dressed up in political drag you know or like in a political metaphor like one of the verses ends i'll be looking because i want you tonight all right <laughs> you know, like this there's a in, in a weird way this is like a kind of a distorted not not a not a love song but like a song of longing or a song of a desire to connect and also a feeling of being invisible you know that like yeah it's it's he doesn't seem like the type to be into this author but you know his style and some of these lyrics are very kind of cut up barosi mix of yeah. a couple different things at once especially with the yeah. surveillance type of stuff on public witness. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a feeling of paranoia, but there's also like a deeper feeling of like uh, wanting to disappear completely mm-hmm. as a, because of, I think he was in a dark place while making this record. I don't know what was going on in his personal life, but it feels like there's some darkness there that he's exploring in a really, really interesting way. Yeah. I mean, for, uh, if I had to put a finger on it, which is hard, because there's so much going on on this record, but it, to me it feels like I said, like Ian feels kind of tired but dogged and and committed, and still trying to explore and push on. And Guy feels like a raw nerve type of uh, energy. Yeah, you want to buy him some soup, you know. <laughs> um, then we get to uh, returning the screw. Now this one. This is the first sat- really satisfying Ian one to me on this record because it's where Ian takes a lot of chances, but they all land for me. This is him kind of getting jazzy with his phrasing, and the music opens up with a very, to my ears, a very slint influence type of vibe. And uh, talk about tension and release, which you talked about nonstop on the last episode, but this song is. 100% about that. And this song, I was trying to place it. I'm like, oh, you know, it, it reaches back to something like Promises, but is much more successful. 
And it also reaches forward to the kind of thing that he's doing now in Corky. It's got that kind of vibe as well, just slightly more aggressive than how it's getting presented now, but it's got that same kind of Ian jazz type of thing going on. Well, I call this one of the don't make Ian angry songs because there's such a, a oh yeah visceral feeling of like a seething, glowering. Yeah, like song. a hatred almost you know, in his voice. And it's funny because it's, you know, he says in the Joe Gross book, it was inspired by the Poison Idea 12-inch and also oh. by these... Uh, See, I'm I'm kind of glad I didn't didn't read that. Yeah, but it's like mostly like scene politics. It's like this yeah. song and and Great Cop are like. Yeah, I figured this was a songs. Yeah, I figured this was about something like that. I couldn't tell if it was him talking about himself, like some of his old writing, or if it was him talking about a zine writer or something like that. But yeah, okay, that makes sense. I mean, musically too, it it feels so narrative. The the structure of the song, it feels like you you get this whole arc of a story like just just the music is like so per i feel like so well constructed you know you go from you get inter introduced you get in the thick of things then you go left and right and have some adventures and you come out the other side and and you know it's it's all very satisfying musically and yeah lyrically you know there's some great lines in there but but yeah you're right it's a it's a kiss another ian kiss off song which he's always good at it's like dylan with his kiss off songs and you know i didn't do too much of comparing side by side with the albini demos which are I didn't widely either. available I, but yeah I, i've heard it heard them but i purposefully didn't do that but this is to me this is the only one that for me the other version sounds good you know what i mean or sounds as good as the one on the record it's, oh, okay it's, uh -huh. it's a little bit murkier and it feels like slintier i guess for lack of a better term like you're at the bottom of like a well kind of like buried in this like yeah that kind of ambiance um, yeah the ambient yeah or the ambient dark environment yeah yeah but yeah i agree it's it's super effective song structure with like when the big loud crashing chords come in and the scream it's super effective and uh I, and i dissed his voice on the first song but i love his voice on this song i think he, like I said, he really reaches and and tries something different, and it really works on this one. Yeah, because they've done slow, loud. They've done songs yeah. like Blueprint in the past, but this one is like it's going for a whole different effect. Yeah, uh, yeah, approaching it from a yeah, exactly, emotional, different territory, musically anyway. And I like that it starts with a whisper, and the inevitable Ian scream comes soon enough. But it's it's cool. I just like Ian screaming. I think that's the theme. <laughs> I love Ian I, Well, see, I love Ian screaming, but you use the word bellowing. I don't love Ian bellowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more like when he's more closer to Roger Daltrey, it's like when he's like in his, uh, when he's like doing the Who style screams. That's like when it's classic Ian. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's track four. Yeah. Smallpox Champion. One of the more direct songs on the album. Yeah, I know. This one didn't does not take long to parse out the meaning. That's for sure. And have, but within that, it's one of the highlights of Guy's lyrics on the album. I feel like. Yeah, I mean, I think that Guy he tends to he tends to be known for his obliqueness, but I think when he's direct and when he's clear in what he's saying, he can also be very effective. And I think here it's like 
it's a classic protest song. I, I think it might be one of the best songs written about the genocide of indigenous Americans. You know, I do too. Got such an amazing message, and it's got such passion behind it. Well, my hometown, Amherst, Massachusetts, is named for Lord Jeffrey Amherst, who is famous as the inventor of chemical warfare because he gave smallpox infested blankets to the, to the Native Americans in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. So, like, this is something I grew up knowing about and thinking, like, how fucked up is it that we have colleges and towns named after these people in America still to this day? Yeah. Um, and I just love that he went out and wrote a song about it that, like, we are we are guilty of these crimes. These crimes have been committed, and they they need to be recognized. Yeah, and I think the song does that in a super powerful way, just non musically, just like in terms of the themes. Yeah, of yeah, the song. of course. Yeah, and I mean the yeah, he's very explicit, and I mean, it, and that's saying something too. I mean, for him to be that passionate that he's not going to cloak it in too much metaphor, he's going to keep it very clear. I mean, there's some amazing lines, even just the initial ones, and give natives some blankets warm like the grave. This is a pattern cut from the cloth. This is the pattern designed to take you right out. And eventually he talks about the history and the future and, and how it's all connected and this pattern of, how did I put it? This Jesus, I can't read my right. Just a pattern of uh, bloodlust and uh, sociopathic genocidal bloodlust that is the inevitable driver of colonialism and not just to the natives but of course that's the main focus of the song yeah and then and then musically it reminds me a little bit of public witness program where there's a there's a kind of a a mod sensibility or a, a 60s rock sensibility but filtered through these interesting noise rock meets noise six. rock filter yeah. yeah that kind of like cyclical main riff i love that little turnaround before the chorus the extra repetition of that like you know do 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 before it launches in but i love the way the song starts yeah it's very sonic youth and also very much like uh red medicine with all those like weird distorted demo-y sounding intros that are on Mm -hmm. that record kind of like the idea of like a noise collage that is it like a string that's getting progressively more distorted feedbacking on a guitar something he's like strumming or banging against it with his hands or oh yeah yeah i mean um, i don't i don't know exactly i know the vibe but i can't pull the well there's a lot of moments that start on this record that start with silence and then there's the kind of like white noise kind of effect that then erupts into this really noisy anthemic but abrasive song yeah like that's that happens on facet squared it happens on this song it happens later so there's a sense of like the signal and the noise that there's this like static Mm -hmm. quality or morse code sound and there's also morse code sounds on the chorus on this song i wouldn't call morse codes i i think they're more like a dissonant flute sound like i thought (laughs) i literally thought that and i made a fool myself asking gee it's like are you playing clarinet on this because I guess it's harmonics, but I haven't heard harmonics sound so off-key and weird before, but it works for the song. Yeah, it's like bleeps and bloops, I guess I would call it. That's mm-hmm. like a very technical term. But to it me, is it, the technical term. To me, it sounds like military um, signals again, mm. You know that they're finding mm. ways of using the guitar in this noisy way to create 
a harmonic effect or a, a noisy effect, all while using very traditional tuning. Like it's all very legible as rock music, but there's a kind of a sense of, uh, I don't know, it's a kind of like a musical metaphor for colonialism or militarism, you know? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it yeah, musically it fits the lyrics. And uh, one of my notes, I wrote a disorienting snake pit of guitar especially especially when it gets to the second chorus when it's not those harmonics but the second guitar is doing this very very uh fast dissonant thing underneath the main riff main chorus riff and then can we talk about the coda for the song yeah yeah where uh, that yeah i wrote that, that too that triumphant galloping bass riff from joe comes in and then the two guitars again play this kind of oscillating pattern that oh you mean on the chuck the cha-cha-cha part? Yeah, the cha-cha-cha-cha champion. Yeah. It's like the guitars separate and then they come back together and then they separate again. And it's like they play, it's almost like a minimalist music, like a Philip Glass thing where they play out of sync with each other and then back in sync. And I don't know how they how they figured that out, but it's a super cool effect. Well, hours and hours and hours and hours. Lots of, of practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the 60s part to me, you know, obviously the... Totally the cha-cha-cha and then he not only does it the way he sings that but then he throws in the kind of falsetto woos right after the cha-cha-cha it's like so cool yeah which belie which belie the deadly serious tone of the lyrics it's it's a fascinating little song and you know i i like it also on the chorus they use that kind of they're all telephone voice like uh backups or just singing what he's singing like kind of underneath but you know what i'm thinking it is is i bet it's and i know ian would be like it's not a fucking telephone i bet it's uh them yelling into their pickups because they would do that sometimes um, and that that'll pick up you know something sounding really tinny into the amp itself and he has a yeah. these this song has a lot of lyrics and they're all really good they're all really strong. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a super, super good lyric. And, you know, I always heard the cha-cha thing as a kind of like a, a mocking of the oh, yeah, smallpox yeah. champion, right? That there's there's a there's a way in which Guy presents as like, if Ian has a very masculine energy, then, then Guy seems to have a more feminine energy. Or if like Ian is a dog, is canine, then Guy is feline. So there's a sense <laughs> in which he's doing something that's kind of like emasculating the the military man by by doing a kind of drag performance mm -hmm. or doing a kind mm -hmm. of like a you know you can sort of see Guy dancing to this song in a sarcastic way in a kind of glammy theatrical way that's interesting I, I wouldn't have thought that but I, I, you know it's valid then we get to rend it this one's not as uh especially the chorus is one of the less you know wading through the barbed wire guitars to get to the melody it, it really has a big hitting chorus and i like how it starts with you know they, they they've done it before maybe but it, it's always cool and it's kind of surprising to come right in on this part that feels like it's the middle of a song like the crescendo of a regular song they're like starting the song that way well what i love about the opening is that um, it's this very strange motif. And again, that's what I call the gee chord, that very dissonant chord that ends with the kind of open string. And then the whole song builds back up to that motif and it ends with that motif. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which we start at the end of this moment of like emotional pain and suffering or catharsis. 
and then we go through all these peaks and valleys because then the acapella yeah. vocals come in and it builds and builds and builds until we realize when we're listening to the end of the song like oh my god that's where we've been going this whole time is this place of it's a kind of a dramaturgical trick of like starting when you start to play at the moment of crisis and then you flash back and you build up to the crisis all over again and oh yeah to me, this is definitely a crisis this is a crisis song you know well like it's, a love crisis yeah yeah it's the enactment of a, of a it's the staging of a kind of internal crisis in this yeah. very i find very disturbing <laughs> way huh. very powerful and very disturbing i i ah oh, that's interesting i mean i don't think it's pleasant but i think it I, disturbing is a strong word huh interesting why don't you cut up my mouth surrender rend oh he he's yours. always got the the body horror stuff going on in his songs i'm used yeah, to but it is there, but this is like the most this, to me this is the most cronenbergian body horror key song of oh all. there's there's another one coming that i think is more cronenbergian but yeah yeah i i love when it drops from the first part because it's like all of a sudden just his voice and it's so uh exposed and naked which is what the song's about that kind of vulnerability that kind of overwhelm that can happen in intimate relationships of just feeling like fuck i'm not in control of myself anymore like i'm connected to you and it's it's fucking with my own self yeah you almost feel like you shouldn't be yeah voyeuristic in hearing it yeah. yeah it feels uncomfortably intimate and, and vulnerable and then when the guitars do come in, not the heavy ones, but the clean ones, I'm just such a, it, it was the same way with the Jawbox record. There's this kind of clear, clean, but like really rich and deep, deep toned vibe that the guitars have. That's just so nice. Like I love the, I love the tones on this whole album, but that's the other thing too, that I didn't mention in the beginning is this album, every guitar the drums are, are slightly different too. They're not as big and bombastic 90s as they were in the early days of Ted production, but now they're kind of more compact, but still like really punchy. Whereas the uh, guitars and the bass, you know, are all very dark toned, very, uh, everything's got this, you know, bassy, but uh, clear, but also very, uh, like I said, it, it there's it's not bright. Even when they get trebly, they don't get bright. Everything sounds more distorted too, I feel like, on this album. I mean, you're describing what's close to my ideal. You know, like <laughs> I just love that the heavy the heaviness and the darkness of, of the guitar sound on this record. Um yeah. and, and you know, I feel like this song musically kind of calls back to returning the screw, where hmm. that's a similar kind of brooding minor key, or at least the clean riff does feel yeah. like it's in the same oh, kind okay. of universe uh -huh. as returning the screw it's a similar it's a little bit similar in structure too where there's this quiet section that then builds into this big kind of anthemic chorus oh the chorus is it's geesing and really strong and melodically with like a simple phrase that just really hits all the right marks for him with this army of ian's singing backups <laughs> you know it's not just one ian there's like multiple ians singing i find it very i find it very moving to hear ian come in and sing support vocals yeah it's great it, he's it great just, at but, backups but to me it also makes gee sound like he's less alone and isolated in his world, <laughs> in the song. it's like you're oh, there's just a worried about the poor guy <laughs> yeah it's like oh yeah there's a friend who's who's there for him <laughs> who's like part of this who's like empathizing with him 
You know what I mean? I don't know. For me, like that, there's just something that helps me get through the song as painful <laughs> as it is by hearing Ian come in at that moment. That's cool. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, the, the Joe Gross book mentions a demo recording of the song that he says is even better, that he argues is the definitive version. Release, release it. <laughs> release the <laughs> demo tapes for Killtaker, please. Rend it. Release it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, there's demos for all these songs would be so fascinating because there are. But let's get on to the last song on side. No. Isn't yeah, it? last song on side A. Yeah, yeah. last song on side A. <laughs> Sorry. So yeah, so Rend It. So we go from Rend It, which is this kind of uncomfortable masterpiece, I would say. It's totally like a, a oh, yeah. brilliant, brilliant song, but very loud, very intense. Uh, uh, and all of side A actually is quite loud and abrasive and intense. Um, and you do get this feeling of just like a kind of emotional exhaustion or fatigue listening to all these songs back to back. And then I love that kind of seamless segue straight into 23 Beats Off. Like it mm -hmm. almost feels like this is the continuation of the same song. Like this is a 10 minute long song with all these different parts from Rendit into 23 Beats Off. I just think it's so effective. And then again, you have this oh, long. This is the one that I, that I meant to say that about. Or does he do it on that one too? Where Ian starts starts with a whispering the Spoken lyrics, word. Yeah. And then, then eventually does his screaming yeah it takes like a it takes like a, a minute of him doing the spoken word over this kind of mm -hmm. softer instrumental track to then screaming up an octave you know yeah and talk about as well this is another one where the music actually does perfectly mirror the lyrics and god even even the noise outro ending this kind of uh piece which, which is part of the song, but which is almost its own own entity is, I don't know, like, I, I'm sure some people turn it off at that point, but that's, I think it's essential to the whole song. It's such a distressed and sad and mournful, but touching piece that all the layers and layers of distortion and feedback and tones at the end with just oh, yeah, the, the single hit drum beats. The 23 beats off right i mean mm -hmm. the, that's what the 23 beats is in the title um and yeah i think it's to me this is a roadmap song it's pointing towards the sense of spaciousness and exploration that you're going to hear on red medicine and especially end hits which is another you know 23 beats from those are like snare hits from brendan in this song and end hits the title of that record is a reference to you know similar kind of like studio experimentation built around Brendan's snare grounding everything. Well, and it's interesting because some folks say that it's potentially about Magic Johnson and AIDS. And I mean, obviously it's about, about a famous figure with AIDS, but Magic Johnson's number was 32 in the Lakers. And the song is 23, the back, the reverse of that. Yeah, I think I think Ian said it was about Freddie Mercury and Arthur Ashe in some interview. Oh, that's right. Uh, and Arthur Ashe, yeah. I do remember hearing that. And that the Magic Johnson thing is apocryphal, but it just was 23 beats from Brendan in the studio. Mm -hmm. But I also love, we haven't talked about that second riff that comes in before the big feedback noise breakdown section, which seems to kind of emerge out of the first 
riff that opens the song. You know, the the one under the kind of B section mm -hmm. under used to pretend he was fighting some war somewhere. There's just a way in which you can tell that they've played these songs so so much that they've come up with all these intricate parts and variations and like second sections that kind of seem to emerge magically uh, out of, it feels like they've done a lot of woodshedding on the arrangements for this album before they finally recorded these songs, which is to me really satisfying. Yeah. This is where the, the vocals really do, like you said, with the B section, the A section and the noise section, they move through this ever-changing kaleidoscopic thicket of guitars and swirls of distorted tones and you know it's it's a deep sad song and uh and another huge scream so we've had a yeah. screams in returning the screw in this song and in facet squared so all of the ian songs on this on side a are built around huge screaming, a, a climatic scream yeah. climactic screams which is something i hadn't realized before we we started talking so. mm. well and I mean, just to get back to the theme, at this point in time in history, at that time, I should say, AIDS was like still slightly understood, not fully understood. And, you know, this song is so good at showing how, in a way, in the public eye can decimate a person's personal history of life, all the life they had until they got AIDS. You know, it, it destroys any... Uh, nuance and becomes like this atom smasher of identity down to the uh down to just the tattoo of aids victim on the person's identity and that's it like all you know you don't you, like i remember when rock hudson passed and it was like there was talk about his career little but it, it, you know it, it it's this like uh scarlet letter you know at the time it and it really came like once someone had AIDS, it was like that became the story, not anything to do with all their years of life and experience. Yeah, it's weird how that has kind of seemingly uh, receded. Yeah, the, yeah, thank God. I remember, I remember sex education classes that I had to take in elementary school. And, you know, before you even have sex, you're being told about how to put on condoms and stuff. And if you get this disease, you will die. Right, yeah, death sure. That's and, then scary. Famous, <laughs> and then famous people getting diagnosed with it and thinking like, oh, they're going to die. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, in, in theater, there's a whole generation of, of theater artists who basically died of AIDS. And uh, I, a lot of my professors are people who were diagnosed who are still alive to this day and are some of the first miracle patients. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just such a different reality now than it was back then. And I think that adds to the song. Um, yeah you put it in that context but it's also just a super powerful piece of music that is very mournful and soulful you know mm -hmm. yeah, communicate definitely. even if you didn't know what it was about it would communicate that emotion i think and there's no other place it could sit on the record other than where it does it'd be too much in the middle of the first or second side it'd be too much to open a course and to end the album on it would work but it would just it would end on this kind of very heavy dark depressing note which would be hard to be kind of a weird thing to end on so I like I, I like what genius says about the title of the song huh? uh, beats off obviously is a slang term for masturbation 
Oh my god. <laughs> but also may refer to an instrument in a song playing behind time. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it means. I'm sure they're talking about beating off. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> oh. Uh then we Sorry. Sorry about that. Sorry. No, that's um, right. That's funny. Yeah, I, I agree though. Yeah, it comes at the end. It's like the it's the climax to side A, you know? Yeah, speaking of beating off. So <laughs> sorry. then we turn the record over and we get we get the reprieve, we get the out breath, we get the comfort, the speckled light through the trees of sweet and low. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful song. It's just a beautiful instrumental, almost pastoral song that is a beautiful way to start side two. And I love I love the rhythm section on the song. I yeah. feel like Yeah. Joe and uh Brendan really drive this thing but they do it in a way that isn't so like right on top of the beat and like urgent it's got this really nice groove to it and like you said the 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 chorus really opens up and becomes this is they have other moments that that will do that but this is kind of one of those times early on where or i guess midway on where they you know almost touch on this cosmic scale not just the dirty grimy dc street they rise above it into this almost uh you know airy realm which is nice yeah and it's uh, yeah it's like the flower opening maybe is one possible way of reading the song or i just love how it sounds like they're listening so closely to each other you know as musicians and that there's a real conversation happening among the four instrumentalists Especially the, also the two guitars in the chorus section, the way they the share phrases and do call and response with one another. I disagree. All right, so next we ha- <laughs> okay. next we have the tribute to one of yeah I wouldn't say at one point my absolute favorite director, but definitely in the top. What do you call that? Uh, Pantheon. Echelon? No, the. Uh, the pyramid <laughs> no is it the what monument the with all the Odium? presidents presidents on the mountain mount rushmore oh yeah that's it yeah he's <laughs> in the mount rushmore of uh directors for me a hundred percent and the song totally is a great kind of snapshot gives you the sense of his character anyway if not the types of movies he did he was the most kind of punk rock energy of a director you could have especially at the time it was a system an entrenched system like the the film industry was basically like the major label system like there's no one except the artists that knew there only like 20 30 people would see their stuff were doing independent things and here was this guy that was a well-known actor creating these movies, using his his own money to fund these movies that him and his friends and his family and his neighborhood and all that uh, starred in and using really innovative but controversial type of filming shots and being almost aggressive and violent, at least emotionally, if not physically, in a way to shock you into uh, into opening up, into 
becoming vulnerable and to becoming pure and open-hearted, like these moments of true dropping your armor for a moment. So this song does that great. And opening with the <laughs> opening with that weird smeared guitar note slide up thing and with with Guy Young, shut up. <laughs> really that. <laughs> yes. It's yeah. so great. Yeah. I mean I feel like this this song is like it's it could only be on this record. There's something about the the funkiness of it, but also the yeah. kind of super menacing bass line that comes in and the kind of uh it's it's like noise rock crossed with dub or go-go music almost. There's a there's dub, a I can see it for sure. There's like a funky drummer drum beat yeah there's a w w rhythm section w bass um and then this totally like post-punk kind of like scratchy guitar on top and Guy's vocal performance so confident and so in your face and so yeah almost acting out cassavetti's personality uh yeah because he was this kind of like new york in your face wise guy yeah type dude you know who was just like figuring out how to make these art films that yeah, very emotionally direct um, mm -hmm. and very truthful and honest and soul bearing. And I also like how the song is kind of like an allegory of, of the punk rock lifestyle, the DIY. Yeah. Mindset, yeah. Obviously. Oh, definitely. <clears throat> and I mean, that's interesting. All the descriptors you had, because for the main riff, I heard it as like almost an uh, apocalyptic uh, Bo Diddley type of type <laughs> of beat going on. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's just a very it's a very iconic riff right it's just a very catchy riff that like to me it's like it just sounds like fugazi you know it sounds like yeah yeah fugazi. true i could also definitely see Guy dancing to this song oh yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah you know the chorus i didn't go back and listen which i really should have because i could be way off but to me it it's at least related to if not repurposing the Joe number one riff that it's like very similar kind of groove on the chorus and Joe's playing his ass off as usual. That's what I got on that, man. What about you? Anything it's else? Just a, yeah. It's just a killer. Awesome. Yeah. Song. And we haven't talked a lot about Brendan on this record, but I know it's like, he's, it's just self-evident that Brendan's an amazing. So amazing virtuosic, drum. but yeah. especially on this song, he's like, I feel like he's really like leading the band on this song. You're right. Um, I think you're so right. Incredibly in the groove with this song. Yep. Oh yeah. I keep talking up Joe too much and I mean, not too much, but a lot. And then the next song, great cop. I feel like Joe's the one that's leading everyone on that song, even though he didn't write it obviously, but his playing is like kind of the melodic uh, bones and, and kind of pushing things and pulling things and adding in these little, riffs within the song that you know the story obviously is that ian wrote it way back when which you know if he played it back then there would be no kind of sinewy bass that joe does you know he really uh adds this other element to it the only thing about this song is that like the first song i don't dislike ian's vocals on this one but i kind of knowing that it was written way back when i would love to hear old ian sing great cup like that voice would just kick ass yeah i mean it's totally this is the most throwback song to a kind of hardcore style of speed intensity presentation but as you point out joe's bass playing 
Brendan's drumming. It just has a little bit more nimbleness and musicality that sets it off. Yeah, um, but even the the drum beat that that Brendan does in the beginning is hundred percent out of the uh, the Jeff Nelson school. Jeff Nelson, it's a total Jeff Nelson uh, derived, like you know yeah. his his snare roll, kind of kind of martial military yeah. marching band sort of style. Um, and you know, but I, I love the big fills he comes in with at the end. They're almost like, um, you know, not to speak of Dave Grohl, but like I think Dave Grohl writes these fills that function as hooks in songs. And I think Brendan has a similar talent for writing these drum parts that are super catchy that you like listen for and you wait for when they're going to come in the song. I also just I'm I like to run to this song like if I'm. <laughs> running a half marathon this is one of the songs that like you listen to on the last half mile mm. to just like give you that extra fucking kick in the ass to like finish because like you have to just blast this song on your headphones and run <laughs> your run your balls off basically wow okay <laughs> <laughs> you're like that's too much detail for me no yeah i get it this, i mean this song and epic problem are probably the two fugazi songs that i run to okay yeah, I could see that. And obviously, it's also another song about scene politics. It feels like Ian is... Yeah, I mean, and talk about finger-pointing it. He literally so, talks about yeah. a finger-pointing. Yeah, and it's like, you, 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 you. Yep. It's, But it feels like he's really fed up with all the shit that he's getting. You'd make a great cop is just such a great line. Like yeah. th That's basically the whole song, really. Well, like, what is that other lyric? At least I'm fucking trying. You know, I look for wires when I'm talking to you. That that also is a. Those two lines are the the best parts right. of the whole song. But it's like it's a throwback to that minor threat song where he says, "At least I'm fucking trying." Mm -hmm. Like you know, like what the fuck? What is your fucking problem with me? Why don't you go fucking do something? You know, mm -hmm. which I, I think is a perfectly valid response to a lot of shit that he probably was getting at the time. It's oh like, yeah, and back then it was. Even in the eighties, much less the nineties, there's sure, it was endless. So endless. many scene police. Yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. And then uh I, I feel like there's been already maybe in previous records, I could be wrong. But I feel like this record is where they really start using so many movie metaphors. I mean, because the next song obviously is comes from a movie as well. Christopher Walken syndrome. Uh another one of them kind of white noise Morse code style songs where yeah, there's a, yeah. a song that erupts noisily out of a kind of ambient collage opening and another one of those very dissonant but very catchy gi riffs and i think you know this is just like a rocker really mm -hmm. uh, at this point but i love the kind of um i don't think it's the strongest song on the album but it it, it does it's, the job it yeah. does the job it's really solid and i love the chorus the way he does his, the backup vocal or the other vocals, the other geese that are flying around your earphones yeah, or your speakers. Kind of moaning, yeah, the kind of moaning sound of the chorus. Yeah, it's um, it it gives it a three dimensional kind of uh, environment for the song, and also the kind of math rock drive like Jehu style riff where they drop a, a yeah. beat from the time signature. I just love that. I love it so much. Yeah, and I mean, this is the song that the you know that that I thought of when talking about J.G. Ballard. I mean, mm -hmm. like Crash. It's it's about that kind of impulse, that self-destructive, albeit less sexual, impulse to uh, 
<laughs> but uh but i mean in the imagery and in the vibe and then like i said with that kind of chorus with things it's almost like a spinning effect with the vocals it makes me think of a potential you know like like a car out of control or something and w w which totally threw my mind into the imagery of being on tour at one point i think in driving through san diego or somewhere in the middle of the night and uh oh no i was in a passenger seat i was supposed to keep the driver awake and we were both falling asleep and all of a sudden i i see a deer in the middle of the road and i'm like watch out watch out and the uh, the driver of the van like hold the wheel really hard and all of a sudden we're doing these three 360s thankfully we didn't crash or, or go off the road but we did at least two 360s which just felt like minutes of time going by as we're just spin and then spinning again and i, I had that uh that imagery came up when i was listening to this song yeah i think we've all unfortunately probably been there when we're too tired to drive or the mm -hmm. roads are slippery and you spin out and or you yeah. just like stare at the at the uh what's it called the borderline like you start driving off the road towards the thing because you're tired and oh, yeah. looking at it you know yeah um the horizon a, yeah, yeah. Uh, no like the, the 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 barrier on the side of the road it's like on the highway oh. like have you ever just gone onto the shoulder by accident oh, and then you kind of have to like yeah. steer back onto the main road it's like a yeah where yeah, it's got the bumpy like yeah it's a freaky it's a freaky kind of feeling and there's not like a death wish in the song there's just a kind of like a uh a, a fear of the song or like a hallucinatory quality to the song yeah again that very rap like use of words you know scars crash and glass made you laugh you'd show it off to your friends like that's so just rolls right off the uh tongue yeah. red dressed in red drenched in red spreading red ever red it's a lot of uh kind of musical language here and i do like the 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 way he goes into the falsetto at the very end which feels similar to what he does in target a kind of like use of the head voice yeah yeah definitely so it's a good song it's not my favorite on the record but it's yeah a good song. agreed then we get to instrument which is one of my favorite ian songs on here or i guess it's just it's a breath of fresh air to get another direct song you know it's maybe lyrically not super direct but it's it's pretty clear and it's the music feels like a slightly more noise drenched version of the early fugazi style totally agree yeah that's what what my notes say like it's that kind of like early fugazi anthemic palm muted style of songwriting mm -hmm. crossed with like buried under all this noise you know yeah yeah and then when everything pulls away and it's just the rhythm section is so good but also very very similar to long distance runner uh on the next record you mm, know? Mm -hmm. because it's it's similar to me to long long division and also to long distance runner and like long division is so simple in its presentation on that record mm -hmm. long and long distance runner is so complicated sound wise as a soundscape and this is like right in between those two for me wow and even i didn't think about it about this song when i said that about sounding tired but there's even the line we've been dragged through the fire we yep. bragged about that fire but suddenly we're tired could it be that loss could weigh 
Yeah. yeah, I had those lyrics written down too. I mean, it's the same. It's the same theme as long distance runner of just like keep on going. Right. Yeah. You need to keep on pushing through the tiredness, you know, through entropy. Yeah, great. It's a great song, but definitely uh, the closest to the classic Coke version of Fugazi. And like the the those buzzsaw guitars that come in at the at the end of the song, mm-hmm. like around three minutes in. Where it's like the main riff, but it's it's a different. Uh, but yeah, with the, the added like or added distortion, double double speed, really distorted, uh, high up type guitar. Yeah, I just love it. Such a great, such a great Ian song. Such a classic. It is. Ian I agree. Song. It was. It, it, I'm so glad I could say that too. That I'm not just. <laughs> I'm Team Gee here. Each side hosts one classic Ian song. I feel like. So then we get to the last chance. Drew, what you got for the closing track? Well, I would say that this is a another sad and powerful Guy song. It's a troubled and melancholy end to a troubled and melancholy record. And it's like, it's the perfect ending song. Like, I can't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. You know it's just like, a, it's hard to imagine it any other way. Like you said. You know, it, these images of being at the bottom of a sea in a coffin, being out of breath. It's a very it's very oblique in what it's about. It's very it hard is obli- to parse. oblique, but it almost and you know, I maybe I should have asked, maybe I shouldn't have, because it didn't come up. I could read into it almost another drug addiction person. Cause sh- uh, the shot shooting yourself again for what? Uh oh, to, flare, to flare, taste all the flower. waste. And then, uh, yeah, and then pulse stalls uncut but clotted when you thought it would force a flow, like tying up to shoot up and stuff. Yeah, it feels like it's saturated in, in death and doom, kind of like Unwound almost. It's like yeah, yeah, their version definitely. of an Unwound song. Um, and obviously, I think the heroin epidemic in D.C. at the time was really bad. I think that it's not like that in the city as much anymore, although there's still... God knows there's still an opioid epidemic, but I mm-hmm. feel like I feel like DC in the nineties was more like what Baltimore would turn into in the nineties and two thousands, where it's just like pervasive and oppressive. The 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 kind of uh, feeling of fatality and death surrounding you in this urban environment. So I buy I buy that it could be about a drug abuse song. I love the uh which kind of stands out as being slightly different from all the other lines. It's kind of a touching couplet, the one where he says, you were needing, too shy for asking, so I'll leave it outside your door. Yeah. Yeah, drugs drugs are bad. Don't do drugs. <laughs> that, that's the moral of today's show, people. Don't do <laughs> drugs. And what a great riff. It's done in a unusual way, because... We know the song and we're so used to it, but most bands or most people would play that riff much faster because it feels like deliberately dragged out and slowed down. It, it's definitely a gee riff. Like I could hear it if it was like had a funky, weird dubby beat behind it. It would be a happy go licky style jam, but I think it's great. And then it ends on those kind of uh, slight little outro of clean notes which is not i wouldn't say ominous and it's not quite hopeful but it's not 
ends on a question it feels like the album which which is apropos not In edgar that, allen yeah i agree it ends the record on a, a kind of ellipsis or a dot 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 and there's right. a kind of a spooky gothic feeling to it it's a haunting song yeah wow we did it <laughs> we made it that, it didn't In, take too long no well we'll see i don't i have no <laughs> idea it didn't feel super no, long it didn't but, feel too long but i know our pace is usually long <laughs> so this is where we talk about the graphics but let's yeah. keep it brief because not the backstory because he does go deep into detail about where they all come from and what they all mean and you know he was real awesome. excited to talk awesome. about it so yeah well, yeah, I mean, uh, the collage by Jim Cohen laid mm. out by Jason Farrell, totally iconic. Yeah, it's so it's so moody and so perfect for, for the band and for where they're at as a band, too. Cover with the Washington Monument on it and yep. this cryptic, cryptic blue stripe of, looks like, journal notes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I love it. I love it. I, yeah. I had this on my wall as like a poster for a long time. Oh, cool. Because I think it's such a cool image. It is. I think they find their feet visually with this record and they kind of continue from there. And it, yeah, and just in the way of like labels that, you know, it's a band thing, but it's it's almost in the way that, to my mind, like factory records or like 4AD all had this kind of underlying aesthetic that tied it all to get all their records together. I feel like Fugazi does that from here on out. Yeah, it sets a kind of visual template for mm -hmm. not just the band, but like it feels like it's a discord signature aesthetic in some ways mm -hmm. um, and uh and you know the the insert also very evocative yeah these oh my god yeah objects and this cut the filter uh the color filter uh on the photograph by cynthia Connolly, very 90s looking yeah very moody very moody. uh post-punky looking group but of also kids. like the four the guys in the band look like grown-ups you know yeah they do very serious adult kind of pose <laughs> so. grown-ups that's a funny one yeah yeah but it's a very it's a very mature record you know it is it is yeah and that's that's a great point because it, it's playing this aggressive hyper adrenalized youth music but finding a way to do it honestly is someone that's not just a teenager anymore that's doing it honestly is a, a a way to express that as an adult is a maturing person yeah and, and super sophisticated and it's it's a it's still a very political record even though it's oblique you know there's critiques mm -hmm. of the american war machine of colonialism uh there's there's references to film to the aids um, crisis to aids crisis drug abuse yeah so it's still very clear in, in its critique but there's a ambitiousness to the song structures to the musicality uh the dissonance the, the noisiness and abrasiveness but still with that feeling of anthemic sing-along early fugazi so to me it's a it's close to a perfect record i'm one of those people if it's not the argument i would say that this is my favorite fugazi record then it should be that one yeah <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's um, either a repeater or it's or it's an on the kill taker, but yeah. it's hard. It's it's such a toss up for me. I love both so much. But also, Red Medicine is incredible. No, I know it really is. It's just so, 
you can't take them all with you. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's just a it's a truly five star, five star album in my book. You know, can't say enough good things about it. Six star it for so me. Much. Yeah, there are no six star records. That's <laughs> it's separate on the Celtic. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So where does this live in your illustrious collection, Drew? All right. So on one side is the band Free. Oh yeah. Um, okay. The the record, the record is Fire and Water, mm. uh, from nineteen seventy one. I think. Sounds right. Um, yeah. Bad and, uh, Company. Yeah, Paul Rogers, future singer of Bad Company, uh, and Paul Kossoff, the great, great, tragically died young guitar player. And I, I, I really like this record. It has like a, a nice open kind of spacious blues rock feeling that I feel is like kind of was a big influence on ACDC, just that kind of minimalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of it. No, for um, sure. A, I, I I definitely prefer Free to Bad Company. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's before Paul Rogers became kind of a cock Ian, As, Ian Asbury from the cult style. Before he invented that style of yeah, sort of yeah. white dude blues singer. Yep. Um, and then on the other side is that was mine a couple Fugazis ago. Yeah, One Nation Under a Groove, Cosmic R and B, getting down for the funk of it. And a great, Don't great, great kind of uh, album cover in that. Oh yeah, their artist was so good. Cartoonish way that their artist did. Yeah. How about you, my friend? So this, what is this? I can't remember how many Fugazi's in we are now. Twelve inches. So I had to go so many out. I'm like four or five. Yeah. Yeah, I had to keep. It's like nope, not that artist, not that artist. So on one side, got a semi-recent. One by, uh, I should have just grabbed the latest, but this guy, Chris Forsyth in the Solar Motel Band, great guitarist and who uh, came up in Indian punk scene, but also took a lot of deep guitar theory and, and practice lessons from Richard Lloyd. And he's done some, he's done some amazing uh, television covers in his time, but yeah, this is a good record. This kind of more of a live jamming record, but he he kind of inhabits the space musically of what he does between, say, definitely television, but also Grateful Dead, and also something a little more modern and experimental. Chris Forsythe's a really interesting dude. I think you read, uh, yeah, you read one of his remembrances of Tom Verlaine. Yeah, he wrote some beautiful eulogies. Then on the other side, a band. I don't know if you've heard of. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have that record. Yeah, the reissue of the uh, the double album version of the House of Girls Against Boys. Fun stuff. Have to be in the right mood, but when you're in the mood, it's it's the only thing. DC related, DC adjacent, absolutely. And yeah, that's where mine lives. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Guy, take it away. <laughs> No, we're not in in the show. We're talking to Gee. There he is.
totally great and an honor to have you on. And I'm sure you feel like you've talked your head off about this uh, record, but I really appreciate you taking the time to do it again. <laughs> oh, my, my pleasure, man. My pleasure. Let's see. Let's let's start with yeah. Let's start with this. This is probably the most. It, it's not controversial, but as I say, I don't want I don't want you to think this is going to be a controversial interview. But what what do you think is the biggest misconception that people in general or press or whoever have a, about this record? About this one, um, you know, I can't think of anything specific to this album that wasn't specific to the kind of the general uh, kind of misconceptions that kind of followed the band from the beginning till the end into the present. You know, I feel like there's always been a, I feel like there's always been a kind of a, not a disconnect between us and our audience, but kind of a disconnect between us and maybe, you know, maybe the larger world in some kind of sense, you know, like the larger kind of for people who are, you know, fans of the band or who are into the group or who knew the group. And, and you know, and we certainly had plenty of people like that. I, and that who I, who I think, you know, basically understood where we were coming from and were part of that ride with us. But I do think outside of that, I think, you know, particularly while the band was together, I think now looking back, like the band is, you know, mentioned, you know, fairly often. And so I think people may think, oh, you know, they were always, you know, heralded in some kind of way. But at the time, I mean, really critically, we were just constantly being kind of like, I think there was a resistance to us. There was this kind of, particularly from like maybe the older guard, like kind of rock critic world or whatever. Like, I think there was something about the band that they found like supremely irritating because I think in a way um, they saw it as maybe a challenge. And, you know, maybe they thought there was some kind of implicit critique to like, you know, what the established rock music world, world was. And, and you know, honestly, that there, there was a critique there. So maybe there was some defensiveness on that end. Maybe there's just some misunderstanding and maybe it just was like that music just wasn't translating to those people. But I, I think at the time we were always kind of like plowing our own road, you know, and we didn't really feel like there was often a lot of like, you know, stuff being reflected back on the band that, that seemed accurate to us. You know, there was just this idea of us being, you know, I mean, I've, we've talked about it a lot, but just this idea of us being, you know, puritanical and, mm-hmm. you know, didactic and, you know, you know, the, the mythology. You know, so there's, yeah, there's this, these mythologies about the group and it's like, we made a, you know, we made a decision that we weren't going to engage with, you know, marketing and large scale interviews and that kind of thing. And so, you know, there was a lot of, I think, you know, distortions that were just kind of out there that were never really confronted for a long time until I think we made our, our movie. And that I think did something to help address some of that stuff. But, but I don't know. I mean, it's funny because I, I don't I think I'm a very, very, I don't think I have a very accurate sense of what albums people think are good or bad out of our catalog or what songs people like. I think I always have kind of my own personal take on it, it doesn't ever seem to match up with whatever the common consensus is. So maybe you can tell me if there, if there's some kind of rap on this record, I have no idea what it would be, but you know, to me, I, I, I don't really, I don't really think of them that way. So I don't really have any idea what, what the common conception is because I just don't, I'm not really that attuned to what, what people, I don't even think really that paid that much attention. Even at the time we were just working so hard. So I, I don't know. Yeah. You guys were deep in the middle of it, so of course, hard to know I mean, or even care funny, about. I think because, like you know, that when that rec- when this record came out, it was like I think one of the things that people say is like, it was the first time that we made, you know, the Billboard 200 or whatever the record charted or whatever, and it sold a lot. But from within the group, nothing material about my life was 
changed in any way. You know, it's like I was still living in Pirate House. I was still living in a room by the, you know, washing machines next to, you know, a bunch of recording equipment. And, you know, I lived there for 10 more years after that, after this record came. It didn't change our lives in any kind of significant way. We were still part of, you know, the neighborhood, the part of the scene. We just were working a lot. We were constantly traveling. The scale of the band, it was obvious the shows were getting bigger. So we were aware that there was like, you know, there was, it was, it was growing to a certain degree. But in terms of like the way we functioned, we were still practicing at my mom's house. We were still, I think one of the only changes that happened around this time was I stopped working jobs outside of the band. You know, up until that point, I'd been working, I think my last job was doing dishes at Dante's uh, restaurant. Oh, okay. You worked at Dante's? Yeah, I was part of the original crew of people that he poached from Food for Thought to come and work there. I'd been bussing uh, at Food for Thought, and then he brought me over to be the main busser and dishwasher at, at Dante's. And so that, I was doing that job and working maybe at Second Story Books as well, and then doing the band. And then at a certain point, I think around right around maybe maybe a year before this or so, I think was when I just couldn't swing the jobs anymore. You know, I was just gone way too much. So. So that was the kind of the main change that happened in my life. But in terms of the way we were living and in terms of the way the in terms of the way we were working, um, it felt, you know, it just felt of a piece, you know. Sure, sure. And I had just re uh, revisited the amazing interview uh, that you and Ian did at the end of the Alphabetical Fugazi pod. And on that one, I think Ian... It just uh, offhandedly in some stream of conversation mentioned how in 92 you were practicing for hours at a time, you know, numerous days a week. You were just woodshedding or, you know, just playing, playing, playing when you weren't touring, just practicing so long. Black yeah, flag I mean, style, I guess. But that's the really, I, I, I think that's what we were doing pretty much from... I mean, we first started rehearsing at uh, Discord House originally, but when we moved to my mom's house, to the basement there, that's when we really started doing like, you know, five-hour practices multiple days a week. And it, it was a great space to work in. And we would, you know, I think around this time of uh, Kill Taker, we'd, we'd started investing in, uh, you know, recording gear and stuff that we would set up in my mom's house. But I think at, right around the time of, I think of, of Kill Taker being maybe the last like four-track demoing record that we did and after that we had an eight track but we were just you know constantly recording in the space constantly writing and rehearsing so we had two modes of working like if we were preparing for tour we would do five hour days where we just played the entire list of songs we just have a, a list of every song we had on a wall and we would just play them one after the other and just do that relentlessly day after day after day until we just knew every single song again, uh, you know, retaught us ourselves, you know, everything. And then if we were writing, then we weren't playing any old stuff, but we were just working on on riffs and bringing stuff in and, you know, trying different combinations of things. And, and we would, yeah, so we were really quite serious. I mean, I would say between three, during preparing for tour, we might practice, you know, four days out of the week. And then if we were writing and maybe three or four or five days a week, you know, um, it was a lot. So at that point, um, it was, but, you know, really kind of just incredibly fun and super productive, but, you know, yeah, really, really rigorous, you know, really, really rigorous. And, um, 
you know, and I was looking like trying to remind myself of what we were doing the year that we made this record. And, you know, when we weren't touring, we were cutting demos and preparing to record. I think we recorded the actual record in December. But before that, you know, we did a demo in, uh, let me think, I think in August, we did a demo in Inner Ear. Then we did one with Albini. And then we were also recording at my mom's house. And we were just, you know, trying so many different uh just trying to teach ourselves. I think the experience at the time was we'd come out of the Steady Diet record feeling a little bit burnt, like we'd, we'd just gone in and recorded that record in a kind of a blur, you know, and I think we wanted to be more intentional about this. The next one, we were like, let's try to really, you know, figure it out or something. So we were just being, when we weren't touring, you know, we did this really fucking long European tour in the middle of that year. I think it was 92 and it was, it was, we did this European tour and I got like Giardia or something halfway through the trip, or maybe even more towards the beginning of the trip. And I just couldn't eat. I couldn't hold food down. And we had like two and a half months of shows. And I just, I lost like, you know, 25 pounds. I just would like sleep on the floor of the van and sleep backstage. And then I really was only able to do anything when we were playing the shows. I was so sick. You know, we'd have a day off every, you know, 10 days or something. And I would try to go to an emergency room or somewhere and try to figure out what was going on. Because I had just had no idea. I thought I had an ulcer. I didn't, I really couldn't tell what was happening. So that had to be stressful. Yeah, yeah. And much less the, you know, the, the amount of sweat and exertion and mental, emotional, et cetera, uh, toll that it takes just to play an intense set and then to do it every night while you're sick. I can't imagine. I mean, the shows were the only saving grace of it. It was the only time where I actually felt like a human being, you know, was because mm. it was like just whatever the adrenaline was, was like it wasn't, you know, kept me going. We played some great shows, but I remember by the time we got back, I just was like so wrung out, you know, I just couldn't tell what was going on with my body. And I just was so fucked up. And, uh, but, you know, we just got right back to working. So this, it was a really weird year and the shows, you know, they were getting bigger and we were like navigating What's interesting, I was thinking about it too, is like when you start playing at every stage of being in a band, you know, your ears acclimate to the rooms that you're in, you know, so you kind of like start hearing the band in different ways. So when you've never played a show or you're just a band starting out, the sound you hear is the sound of you in a practice room. And then you play a club and you do that a few times and then you start hearing your band in that scale. And then we started playing these big rooms, like in 92, you're playing these really big stages and you're playing to like, you know, multiple thousands of people or whatever. Your ears acclimate to a whole other thing, you know, and you start hearing a different scale, different resonances, different frequencies and stuff. So I think we were wrestling a lot with like, what is the sound of the band? You know, what do we actually sound like? It was always this like, it was always changing, you know, so we were always trying to recalibrate and fi figure out. And plus the live thing, when you're playing at that kind of volume on those big stages, you start getting a different relationship to your instrument and, you know, your vocal instrument, but also just in terms of what you can do with guitar, like feedback and uh, sure. all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of stuff in our heads that year, I think. Right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, this is, as I say that, I was about to say, this is such a different sonic record. But then, uh, of course, uh, Steady Diet was a totally different sound, too, and this almost sounds just sonically like a reaction to the previous one. It's the it, it's the noisiest Fugazi record to my ears. Yeah, it's pretty noisy. I mean, it's weird. It didn't seem that way, maybe, but it, it it's pretty, yeah, it is pretty noisy. I mean, it's amusing to me. Like, I when I think that this was the album that made it onto the Billboard chart and you think of the end of <laughs> 23 Beats Off and it's like, it has to be the most, 
abrasive thing that has ever been on that chart. I mean, it's like fucking hectically abrasive. So yeah, I mean, it's a scouring pad of a record for sure. Oh yeah. And I mean, just your, the guitar tones all seem more distorted and seem, they have a darker tone and not darker in mood, but darker in, uh, just, uh, sound wise. The, the, uh, guitar tones, there's no brightness or thinness or, uh, even, uh, chunky presentness it's very dark and gnarled sounding uh oh, that's interesting because i kind of I, I i've always heard it like my guitar being kind of harsh on the on the upper end which is what my guitar sound could be like sometimes and i can definitely i can definitely hear the rickenbacker i can hear that tonality it's interesting too i mean the record has been remastered you know so the original mastering right. was done in england with john loader and the english have a kind of a high-end profile and a different attitude towards using low-end in their masters. And when we remastered it, I think we there was a lot of desire to kind of reintroduce like a different color to the, the low-end than is there before. So that's the main difference between the masters. So I think it depends on which one you're listening to. I think the original master is, you know, it's, it's definitely brighter than the one that exists now. That's a great point. I've been listening to... Uh... Uh, I gotta pay attention. I think I've been listening to the remaster just recently. Instead, I, yeah, I need to AB them. <laughs> yeah, that's, it is quite different. Yeah, I mean that happened with the last episode too, with with the Jawbox release. It was really evident as well with the remaster versus the original mix, or original mastering. But I mean, a lot of the original early CDs that came out on Discord, it was a the the digitization process at that time was at a much lower res than what you could do later. And that was one of the big reasons why we did the thing at all was that they really were quite sonically. I mean, you know, there's aspects to even the cruddiest of the early discorded CDs that still have some appeal to me. You know, it's like, there's like, it's just a matter of taste, I think. But once you could get more of that information and then you could also maybe address some of the low end. So there's quite, you know, for example, the right spring record sounds like considerably different now. The, there, There's a lot of differences in them. And Today, like I listened to the record just so I could kind of remind myself what this one sounded like. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure which one I listened to either. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's a it's a noisy record. But it's it was. Um... Well, and I say that, but it it does it. I don't mean noisy as in messy, because when you focus in on specific parts, specific instruments, it's all very obviously well recorded because with. Uh, Don and Ted, how could it not be? But it, it like I said, it just it, it has a more abrasive quality, and you know, to all of it. I mean, much much less the singing, much less the uh, instruments. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, and I think a lot of that has to do just with with at that point being such a touring project. You know, like it was just like there was so much playing, so there was a lot of like, yeah, there was just a lot of kind of like rock energy i think from playing that much and also things like you know the feedback thing and 23 beats off and all this stuff a lot of that stuff was you know once we started playing louder once we started exploring uh the sonics of, of being on on the stage and stretching the songs out and stuff i think we started learning how to do different things you know and that probably factored into it as well i mean it's interesting to me like a lot of the demos i made for my songs in my basement on four track they were very very you know i write on an acoustic guitar and around this time, I also had bought a tenor guitar. So a lot of the song, like the original kind of germinations of a lot of these songs were actually quite different from what they became. You know, they they were not 
you know, they were there, you know, the shapes of them or the cording or the original ideas were all done very quietly, you know, but, um, hmm. but then once the, once the band worked on, I mean, you know, songs like Rendit or whatever, you can hear the demo for that on instrument and in, that I did in my room. And it's like a lot of that, those demos were kind of more on that tip, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. And no, I was, I was fascinated to hear that, <laughs> that the demo for Cassavetes originally had a country, uh, vibe to it. Yeah, because I, I had written a bunch of songs about different people. Like I wrote one about Steve Marriott. I wrote one about Bobby Fuller. And then I wrote one about Cassavetes. I just I was doing this kind of thing of like writing songs about people and, and all in different kind of uh, formats or whatever. And the original Cassavetes one was, yeah, like a, was, you know, but it was a kind of thing where I was just collecting. I mean, I, was, I actually dug up the all the demos and I'm looking at them right now. And I have like 21, 25, 24. So if you add those all together, it's like 74 songs that I recorded in my basement then. And I would just go through them and find what lyrics in different songs and combine them with music from other songs. You know, I was just had a, uh, I was just writing a shitload of stuff and not all of it became Fugazi stuff, but um, a lot of it was, a lot of it did. And the Cassavetes one was the music ended up being from a totally other kind of demo thing that I was thinking about and then combining it with lyrics from another thing. So it was just like, it was almost like journaling or something. I, I late at night, couldn't sleep. I would just kind of free associate and record stuff just to, to have, you know, just to, to work. No, that makes sense. And was this around the time that you uh, began recording other folks as well? I think that that started after this record when we invested in the A-Track. And then once we had the A-Track, then I really started uh, bringing bands in, you know. Cause, so I think like, you know, Makeup, Slant 6 era, um, those bands would be mm -hmm. some of the first bands that I started recording at uh, Pirate House once we once we set that up there. But it was heading in that direction. I mean, it was definitely like Brendan had this thing. It was a Tascam 234, which was like a rack mounted cassette four track. Really heavy duty, really, really nice, really high quality sound. But it was just a cassette, you know, so. Um, that was kind of the original kind of workhorse that we were using. And then from there, we bought this uh, actual reel-to-reel A-Track with a full board and uh, some outboard gear and some mics. Like Joey P, our sound guy, kind of really encouraged us to do that because he was like, you really need to start learning how to do this. And I think our frustration with the steady diet experience of just not knowing enough, you know, like just being in that perfect balance point between knowing something and being really ignorant of most stuff was we just felt I, I just felt like we got to catch up we got to figure this out and 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 that was for me kill taker was really about learning learning about the next like we I think we had solved how to play together and now we wanted to like learn how to make a record together and uh I think about this record we just tried so many like I was saying we went in in August to inner ear and we had we had instrument kind of an embryonic version of instrument. And then we had Rend It. We had those two songs and we were like, let's just cut these and then see where we're at. And we were working on instrument. And at the time, instrument was a totally different song. It was just like a complete dirge. It was like same bass line, but the guitars were playing full bore, loud as shit through the entire song in these kind of droning chords. So it was this heavy, heavy drone song and super loud. And we were listening to it and getting really frustrated. And then at some point I just walked up to the board and I was like, I think it should sound like this. And I just, 
muted all the guitars and all the verses. So you just heard the bass. And we we're like, this bass line is so badass. Like you can't fucking hear it with all this shit. And it was the first time we like started carving shit out of a mix, you know, we, like, mm-hmm. let's just start like subtracting instead of, yeah. Subtracting instead of adding all the time. So it was like, it was like using it, the board for the first time, like a dub instrument, you know, like the, like the way, you know, dub producers do it. So we like, so then we, that's how we arrange the song. It's like suddenly like, oh, it opens up all this space. Then it, then you get this groove and then maybe we can bring the guitars back in quietly doing something different. So I think that was, a, that was kind of a big moment for us. It was like, it was like, wow, we're actually writing in the room using, using the gear itself. And, and those two songs, I don't know why for, like I listen to that demo now and I think they're, it's fucking great. I'm not sure why we felt like, I think we were just very confused and I think we were, you know, still, I think there was part of us that was wondering, you know, like, is there something that we're missing or that we're not doing right? You know, there's just this kind of self-consciousness and insecurity. So we couldn't really see what we had. I think that that demo was actually, the version of Rended is like fucking awesome. And the version of Instrument has like a different vocal line that's really cool. There's a bunch of really awesome stuff about it, but we just, we just, we just were not confident enough. So at that point, we contacted Albini and went to his house. And I don't know if you've heard the Albini stuff, but we went to his place. Yeah, and... yeah. yeah, I have. And yeah, it was illuminating for me to find out recently. Like, I didn't realize that when you went to do the Albini sessions to quicken the, this part for you, uh, anyone that doesn't know, uh, guys went to Albini's to demo and ended up recording a bunch of stuff and just didn't capture it for whatever reason and and that was part that's become part of the whole lore but what i didn't realize originally was that you went there just to demo and and finish writing songs i didn't know that you weren't going there to try to actually do the album then i think what we thought was we will just go and do a single because we'd met albini in england he he was doing live sound for the digits who were opening for us and uh he'd never seen us before and he was like, whoa, right. He really liked the show. And he offered us, you know, anytime you want to come to my house. This was when he was still recording in his house. So we had this idea like, man, maybe we should take him up on it. We, I just was huge fan of the GOAT record. I just thought, man, if he can record, make it a record sound like that in his house, we should, you know, at least go check it out and see how he runs his stuff and see what the deal is. So we drove up there. We spent four days with him. We started thinking we were just going to do two songs, but it was just rolling. So I, we recorded the whole record, basically. So I think right now, I think there's something that's been leaked on, like, I think there's seven songs that have been leaked, but that's not the, those are remixes that Albini did. That's not the original tape. The original tape had the full record. And um, we did it, we worked on it for like four days. We just had a fucking blast. And we just basically, we were really hands off. We were basically like, we're here to have, let Albini do his thing. We're here to just to like surrender like to the process of the way he works. We don't want to bring anything out. We're just going to bring the songs and play. And, you know, so we, you know, we just, we just kind of had the experience and we, you know, had a, had an amazing time, but then we, you know, he rushed out. We, we were, you know, we're working very, very quickly and he had to, so he cut a bunch of quick mixes for us and we drove back and, you know, we listened to the the stuff on the way back and we were like, whoa, you know, it's like you're when you're in the middle of working something, you're not really sure what you have or don't have. And I think we suddenly realized, like, you know, we're not ready, actually, to make, you know, if we'd gone in and done a single, maybe we could have come out with a single. But we just got too ambitious and it wasn't it wasn't baked yet, you know. And so so we had this 
tape of all the songs and we were kind of like, fuck. And then about a week later, Albini wrote us and was like, you know, I'm listening to this. I fucked up. I would give me a chance to remix it and then we can decide if there's something here or not. So he worked on some more songs for us. And I think that's what's been leaked is that second attempt. And it's not all the songs. He said, I'll just pick the ones that I think I can do something with. So I think he left off like half of them. So there's, you know, there's a full tape, I think, of everything. I was looking for today. I don't think I have a copy of it. So I, I actually have not been able to listen to the original stuff because I don't, I don't think I have it. But but I did listen to the re, to, to the remix stuff that he did. And, you know, I, I can hear why we knew it wasn't right. You know, it's like, I think we just needed to, we needed to try something different in order to give ourselves permission to do what, to do it the way that we wanted to do it. And I think we needed to at least explore going to someplace, you know, leaving the beltway, going somewhere else, trying something different and see if, if that was going to produce some kind of miracle result. And the, 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 the thing we realized was like, there is no, like, there's no shortcut. You have to like, you have to find your voice in the studio yourself, do the work. And, and we, so we decided, you know, let's go back to inner ear. Let's bring Ted back if he'll do it. And, um, let's make it right. And, and then that session was, you know, just a month later or something. We went in December and we did, we made the record the way I think, I think correctly. I think the band, it's interesting. Like, you know, I think that the, the Albini thing was a very live performance and it was just very like blown out and stuff. But I think that there were certain details and certain kinds of attention that we, we, we heard, heard in the songs, songs that we weren't executing, executing at his place. place. And, and so, so that's, that's what, what we, we we focused, focused on, on. And, right. and that's what ted was brought it to your attention yeah and we and i think having ted too like ted was really good at, at being able to like you know he knew us in a different way and and it was so we it was kind of like a step towards us producing ourselves but with the, the kind of the comfort of working with don and ted and feeling you know confident at that point that we could do what we needed to do was this the first record that you guys spent so much time uh, going through different demos to get to the final oh, yeah, album, yeah. or had this happened? Yeah. What's that? No, we, no, we never did demos. Uh-uh. Before this, I mean, we did demos, like the very first demo before the band ever made a record. We did a demo then. Right. Um, but Repeater, no, we just went in and recorded it straight. Margin Walker, we just went in straight. What was the other one? Steady Die, we just went in and recorded it straight. So yeah, we might have had some practice tapes like on a boombox and stuff like that at that point. But this was the first time we were like much more intentional about and the songs changed a lot. I have to say, it's like it taught us that it actually does, you know, it's it's a good process to go through of like recording a bunch of stuff to kind of figure out what where you want to head with it. And sometimes you can wreck shit. I mean, I think in this case, I think by the time we got to the final versions, I don't think we missed you know it's not like we left some great ideas behind too much i mean maybe some of the stuff from the august demo some ideas in that could have been cool but i think for the most part i think we 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 kind of it, 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 we were at the right space when we did it and i think i listen to it now and it's not too many things where i'm kind of like that doesn't sound like the definitive version of the song to me because they all do you know well no and i mean you asked and, and you must know to some degree how it's perceived but uh yeah, I mean, this is a record that is always, if not a person's favorite Fugazi album, is always in the top two or three of everyone's favorites. So. Oh, you think so? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and not just because there's this 33 and a third book. 
Oh, no, yeah. I mean, that was weird, though, because when he wrote that book, we were kind of like, well, what record are you going to do, you know? And we we thought he might do uh, The Argument or something or, like, uh, the first one or I don't know, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah, but this is the one that he did. So I don't know if that's... I don't really think of it that way. I really don't. I don't think of this... I, I really... Even with Steady Diet, I know that we we often, like, kind of... It's become kind of a whipping post for us a little bit. I Even that one, I just... I have... Uh, I, I I feel like there's a there's a lot of merit in the songs and the you know even in the approach like what we were trying to do there's an austerity to it that I can kind of get behind you mm-hmm. know it's like it was intentional you know and we did it some songs more than others but it it definitely really works on some of the songs and it's one of those records that you know does get some flack sometimes but the good thing about that is when you revisit it it's like wow no there's some other best songs around here and you know. But anyway, like one thing I'm curious about is, I'm not sure, yeah, pretty much all the way, even at this point, it seems like the band will grab sometimes older songs, sometimes ones in progress, sometimes ones that have been tinkered with and worked over years. How would it come together that, you know, these songs all belong together, this is the album, as opposed to the other songs that got left behind and maybe got adopted later yeah that's a good question um it's weird yeah like for example on this record there's the the song great cop you know and that song that song ian wrote that song in skewbald so that was he'd written that one i mean it was ancient you know he'd written a version of it in skewbald i think he recorded it again maybe with egg hunt and it was just something that he had around you know and at some point in practice, we would mess around with it and they're like, oh, then we add a part to it or we do something to it. And then suddenly it feels like that's that song's moment, you know, and it just comes together and it feels right. You know, like, I don't know. It's strange. Like, why did Keep Your Eyes Open wait as long as it took to come out? And why did Furniture take as long as it took to come out? I don't know the what the rhyme or reason for it is. It's like a, it's just a feeling of like at some point in practice, something clicked in and it fit in with that body of songs, you know, and. I don't know that it was particularly intentional. It just has more to do with the the uh, dynamics of of jamming and what someone brought in and accidents, you know? It's just like kind of accidental, really. You know, I, when I'm trying to look at what's on this record so I can kind of remind myself of what... Uh, I mean, Facet Squared, Ridden, uh, you know, that's a... Like, that was a riff that I had and around this period of time, Public Witnesses from the same time, Turning the Screws, Smallpox... I mean, they're all from basically that era of songwriting, except for a great cop. Last Chance has a riff that it's actually a outtake from the first Right to Spring demo, which never came out. It was a song called Hazards of Being Male. That was a kind of a joke title that we had for this song. But the, the courting for Last Chance was actually something I had around since even back then. But then I slowed it down and uh, changed the way I played it or whatever. But it's it's basically... It's these Rhiannon Fleetwood Mac chords that I'd had in my head since <laughs> the first time I learned guitar, you know, like I learned how to play that song and those, those Lindsey Buckingham two finger chords or whatever is always in my head. So mm-hmm. I was always trying to find a song to put them in. So I had them just around and the Rights of Spring song didn't work. So that it just kind of fell by the wayside. And then I was remembered it, I think around this time and it kind of came back. But other than that, that and Great Cop, pretty much everything on that record was written um, in the year uh, prior to recording. So it was all, you know, those were the songs that were in our head at that moment. Would you guys write on, I mean, I know some bands can, 
I guess I've done it before too. It is hard though. I mean, would you guys write on the road as well, or was it always when you were back home? And we obviously, you wouldn't just write for a record. Yeah. No, I think. I mean, we might jam on something in sound checks. What we did do is we often played songs as instrumentals as we were figuring out what they would become. So for example, Instrument, the original version of Instrument that I was telling you about, that was that super heavy dirge version. We played that live for like months, you know? We played it as like that, you know, full on, before it became the kind of more uh, dynamic and broken down version that's on the record, we played an early version of that live. So basically we didn't wait to play songs live until we the record came out. We As soon as we had the songs, we just started playing them. So Rend It, all those songs had been songs that we were playing live. Sweden Low, uh, trying to think, like, uh, probably Public Witness had already been on the road for a while. Like, most of these songs were songs that we were already were in the mix of. Since we didn't use a set list, you just would pull shit out. And a lot yeah. of times, if we had just a, a cool, like, like Cassavetes, I think we played that as an instrumental for a while live before we had the finished vocal and finished version of it. So that's how, I think, so... I guess in a way that is sort of writing on the road because you're starting to just, you know, we just would throw the songs in before they were even finished, you know? And sometimes we, you know, there's plenty of times where we're, not plenty of times, but, you know, a few times where even a, the vocalist would change by the time we recorded it. Like the song, mm-hmm. like Turnover used to be an Ian song until I became my song and stuff like that, so. Yeah, yeah. I I love that uh, approach. I mean, as, as far as keeping it, is a living thing is is organic and and ever changing because it seems more honest that way is an expression yeah and it's an opportunity to learn like when you're playing songs in the practice room it's one thing but when you're playing through a you know a marshal at full volume on a stage and then it and you're trying to figure out what the song does at that kind of volume you learn different things about the song because you have a different amount of sustain in your instrument, you know, so you, there's a, it affects the way that you're playing the parts, you know, and it affects the way that you're hitting things, you know, uh, for a song like Renda, you know, we have that acapella section, like to actually feel what that drop into silence sounds like on stage is different from just doing it in practice. You know, you don't really know what that is until you feel it live or whatever. And Sweet and Low, too, for example, a song like that, you know, this, which was so beautiful and lyrical, and we could easily have ruined the song, you know, it would have been in our nature just to like, you know, fucking crank it up. But like we, it, it served this amazing purpose live, you know, to add, to be able to mm. send the room out on that note or to like use it in the set to balance things out and sit in that groove live and let it build and build and stuff like that. So it's like you really learn about the songs in that way it's just there's nothing nothing really like that that you can't really replicate that you know in the basement so yeah without actually having the songs hit the air at that volume and yeah with live humans and so having said that that totally makes sense so is that is that why you uh why the song is called sweet and low because it's like the thing that cuts and uh balances out the set (laughs) it's one of the serves that purpose I, I think it was just a, a, that was just like a rough, you know, we, you know, like there's a bunch of titles that become modified, but when the lyrics get put on and then some, you know, are just working titles that, and that was the working title for that just because of the, I think someone just said sweet and low because of the way the baseline was, you know, it was so beautiful when, you know, Joe wrote that and brought it in and, and 
it's an interesting song, actually. I was listening to it today and I was like, God, it's actually kind of weird, you know, because people often talk about, you know, Fugazi and reggae and stuff. And sometimes I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, I mean, there's reggae in it, but it's like, it's, a, it's you know, you have, it's, it was certainly something we listened to, but it's like oftentimes to my ear, a little bit hard to pull out that thread in the actual music. But the weird thing about Sweden is there actually is like a really, it's like upstroking on the fucking guitar in a way that is like so spot. <laughs> I never even thought about it before till I heard it today. And I was like, wow, that really is like that. But it just, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way. It's got this just lightness and lift and sweetness, you know, particularly when it hits the chorus. The chorus is one of my favorite things that we ever did in live. You know, it could be so, uh, it could just be so refreshing to, you know, for the crowd, I think, hopefully, and, but certainly for us. And, you know, we had the, we had this, I mean, I, whenever I think of this song, I can't help but think of this one show we played in Florence where it was a squatted venue in, in Florence in Italy. And we ended the, you know, it was one of these really fucking packed rooms, super fucking hot. And we ended this show with it and the crowd just started singing this old partisan song, Bella Ciao, you know, this like very beautiful, uh, anti-fascist song from like, you know, the resistance in World War II or whatever. And and so we're just playing the riff and then the crowd just spontaneously started singing this thing. It's like one of the most beautiful moments that we ever had on stage, you know, and then we just faded out under it and the crowd just kept singing and it was just so moving, you know, just like those kind of things. And it makes me really glad that we never tried to put any kind of vocal on it because it, it opened up a space for things like that to happen, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's perfect without, and it's it's like the uh, exhalation after so much uh, tightness and in breath and uh, tension. Yeah, and in the record, it kind of sits in this in the center, you know, and it comes out of the out of that feedback thing on Twenty Three Beats Off. So it kind of is like gives people, you know, a breath, you know. Yeah, and the the way you described uh, that show, you know, not to. Uh, Whatever, uh, but I gotta tell you, that's exactly the feeling that the first time seeing, uh, Rites of Spring at 9.30 Club, when everybody just starts singing the vocalization at the end of End on End. Oh, yeah. It was just, uh, people dancing all, all over the place. It was just such a, a wild, spontaneous, uh, moving thing. I mean, there's, when crowds, like, yeah, when that, when, when there's a, when there's something transferred or there's an opening or a freedom for the crowds to do shit like that, it's, uh, it's the best. Yeah. It's really, it's, 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 it's a great thing. So, uh, maybe if we go through, uh, your songs on here real quick, the actual tracks starting with public witness program, I got to admit, I can usually find some way in meaning wise for myself in your songs. You know, I don't pretend to, no, and it, it, in some ways it's not important to know the exact details of what inspired certain songs, but Public Witness Program, for some reason, it, it, I need help. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Let's see. Like, uh, let me pull up the lyrics here. Take a look at Pull out this record. The lyrics are so fucking small on this. There she is. Insane. <laughs> um, uh, I know that's how all the lyrics are for me now on those records. But so like this song, I mean, basically the idea behind the song was, um, I don't, I can't remember how it came to me or why I, it occurred to me, but this is one of these songs that I, I was, I'd written some kind of, you know, some version of this in a demo in, in the basement. And the idea, 
it just kind of hit me this, I don't know where it came from, but this idea of like a, a government program where people are paid to observe each other or to witness each other or to see each other or whatever. So the song, the lyrics are all kind of like riffs on this kind of passive, voyeuristic, almost like, uh, you know, the citizenry kind of like spying on itself kind of thing. So like the, but it was, but with, it was sort of tongue in cheek and like, as a, like, you know, the idea that there would be something called the public witness program and, you know, I'm paid to stand around. So there was like this kind of, you know, I'm paid to stand around, I'm blah, blah, blah. And so like, you know, the eyes have it, the eyes always will. There's just like lots of puns in there about like, you know, the eyes have it. It's A-Y-E-S, you know, like when there's a positive vote in, you know, the the eyes have it. So then right, I just, right. was just riffing on it or the eyes have it is with E-Y-E-S. And so it's just a song about kind of, uh, a, you know, a citizenry made kind of passive and like, uh, yeah, well, like kind of like, you know, um, God, I'm, the word is escaping me right now. But it's funny now because like we talked about this with Ian, actually, like I think when we were talking to Joe Gross or something like now when everyone has phones and stuff and there's like this, like the citizenry has become kind of in a way like has become there is a the whole world is a public witness program now. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the it's like everybody's everything is recorded. Everything's on CCTV. There's just like, you know, a that kind of surveillance, that's the word I was looking for, surveillance. The, the public witness program, this was this idea of like, kind of like this uh, citizenry surveillance kind of idea. But then as we wrote the song, you know, the song itself is like, it's, it's, it's humorous in this way to me. Like there was a, it was kind of like a, the idea of the public witness program was like amusing to me and amusing to the band or whatever. But with this idea in it that I think is actually was sort of salient and interesting of just like, you know, uh, kind of, surveillance citizenry type thing. So it was like, it's not a tight idea. It was like not a full idea, but it was, and it was the germ of the idea was there. And then in executing the song, there's just like a lot of like, I don't know, playfulness or whatever, fucking around. But the song to me was always like incredibly catchy. So there was like things about it that I just, you know, we have the hand claps, the double vocals, like there's kind of a, it almost has like a surf quality in the lead and stuff like that. There's like a, there's a lot of stuff that's not really, maybe typical of the way we did stuff. And it was just like, it was one of these kind of lyrics where it was like probably in the normal way of my working, that idea would have been refined more or scrapped or changed or whatever. But it, it's almost like an embryonic song, uh, embryonic lyric for me that I just left alone, you know, instead of like, Oh, I'm going to fucking tighten this up and make it conceptually rock solid and like fully figure out the thing. I just, I just enjoyed the idea. I enjoyed the concept that kind of sparked the song. And then I just kind of left it as it was. Yeah. And I, that's, I, I like that you brought up the hand claps and the kind of surfy guitar thing. Cause my, uh, and maybe it's cause he was aware of your brief weeds type stuff that you would do and snakes and all that. Uh, but you know, my co-host was trying to, venture to say that your songs on the record have like a 60s influence underneath some of the layers of distortion and stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe. I mean, there's something about like, you know, like Mark Boland's, the vocal treatment on T-Rex records that I've always really responded to. And I really love that kind of, sometimes too much, you know, like I get too attracted to doubling and slapback and all that kind of stuff. Like, but that's kind of where my ear goes to with vocal sometimes. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not shy about it in term, when I'm recording, like I, 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 that kind of tr- treatment or whatever, that kind of, you know, that 
glam type sound or whatever i'm i actually am i like it <laughs> so it's like so like on this song i can hear it in my head you know like when it goes to the the chorus and stuff and the doubling and stuff like that i mean that's kind of what i'm hearing so the, yeah i think this song feels like this is a very angry record in a lot of ways and it's actually pretty fucking heavy and sad record in a lot of ways but this song this song is not, it's not like a light song or whatever. And the, the, I, the, but the, the lyric is like, almost like, you know, the witness himself, you know, he's like, he's doing this fucking, he's this, this, this passive observance, this passive surveillance. And, you know, I'd like to see you, but I'm working tonight doing this thing. You know, there, a lot of it is very funny to me. Like I found it very amusing, but it was, it was, it was an idea that I just left, I let be, you know, and I just, but I, sure. but then I came to regret it a little bit in the sense that I think a lot of people didn't really understand it and thought it was about the witness protection program or, you know, they just thought it was like, I wasn't saying it right. Or, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so I think there was a lot of confusion. I mean, I, I don't care about confusion. Like I know a lot of times people are confused by the things that I find interesting or confused by some of the lyrics. And then, you know, oftentimes not, I mean, I don't know, like sometimes people, I think, divine really beautiful meanings from stuff that i didn't even intend and sometimes they totally oh, sure. they totally feel the thing i was intending and it is delivered in a in a coherent way and it and it's received in a coherent way and that's awesome too but but i'm also not uncomfortable with uh i mean there's a lot of things in this record i was actually looking at the lyrics there's like a lot of like weird lyric stuff that i'm kind of like trying to remember like the headspace that it came out of and and this one i just literally have no memory of of what the idea or how the idea came to me or why i started singing about it except that it was one of those you know things where i was like in late night just riffing and then i just i just enjoyed it so i let it be yeah fair enough and and i i knew it couldn't just be about the the public witness protection program itself that just seemed Way too weird and on, on the nose. Which brings the the next one was Smallpox Champion, which, you know, is, is a lot more clear as far as, uh, you know, the references. But uh, what's your memory of putting this one together and, and lyrically, et cetera? With this song, like, uh, I mean, I had, you know, been reading uh, uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee on tour and... I can't remember if I got it from Tomas from Beefeater, maybe possibly passed the book on to me, but there was like, you know, I feel like probably with a lot of people, like there was this, this kind of hole in my sense of American history. And, you know, you, you obviously know that something, you know, genocidal and horrible had happened, but it was on that tour where I was reading that and like, you know, people's history of the United States and stuff like that. And just kind of educating myself a little bit more about it. And I uh, wanted to write about it. So this, yeah, the song's about the, about the treatment of, you know, the Native American population and the genocidal behavior of that, that occurred. And, um, and then, you know, talking, using this story about, you know, like there's this story about these smallpox blankets being given in the, you know, uh, blankets that were laced with smallpox virus to mm-hmm. tribes as a way to, you know, decimate them or whatever and there's you know there's a lot of historical conjecture about whether this happened i mean it's been shown that it did happen at least on one occasion and maybe more than one occasion but to me it's like almost emblematic or metaphorical of kind of a larger just the twisted horror of the some of the stuff you just like the it's just so it's just so painful and so terrible and i just wanted to try to find some way to write about it and and it's so, so it's about that and it's but it's also about how history you can't escape the truths 
that you try to bury, you know? So that's, it's a little bit about like, you know, about that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The legacy of that crazy colonialist bloodlust. Yes. Okay. And one that, that's far less clear as well, again, is, or a little bit less, uh, is, uh, Rendit, which I love. I love this song. Yeah. That one, um, I don't know that, that there's that much I can say about it really. Um, in a way, it kind of reminds me more of the way I was writing when I was in Rites of Spring or something like that. Uh, you know, there's the demo version on instrument. That's where the song kind of started from. So it started off as a very quiet kind of, you know, really quiet song. But yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything I can, if you had a specific question or something about it, or maybe I could help, help answer. No, it. I don't no, know you I know, can, I, I, you know, it's just kind of I, like, I, I get that it's probably a personal expression. So there you go. Personal expression. That's what, that's what I'll use. <laughs> that's what it was. <laughs> that's what it was. Yes. Correct. No, no, that's that's fine. Let's see. Cassavetes is pretty obvious, uh, but I'd like to hear more about your reasons for deciding that that one does that lyric deserve to be uh, on the record. Not that it doesn't; it really does. I love Cassavetes, and there's no one more punk rock in the uh, film industry than Cassavetes was, and more heartfelt. Yeah, um, I think at the time I had, I had discovered his films. I was going to uh, I was going to the AFI a lot, the American Film Institute, and I was seeing like whenever I was back, you know, in town, I would just you know go to movies often by myself and just you know oh they're going to show a bunch of Alan Clark movies and I just go there and just watch like a week of Alan Clark movies and then they I think at some point they showed Husbands by Cassavetes, which was the first one of his that I'd ever seen. And it really affected me. I just, I was just so, uh, I was so shocked by the film. It's, Mm -hmm. it's such a painful movie and it's so brutal in this way, but, and, and it's painstaking kind of dissection of kind of male friendship in both its most negative and most positive aspects. And I just was so, I just was you know so startled by it. And I, I, so I, I, I immediately like tracked down as many of the movies as I could and tried to see them. And, uh, the more I learned about, uh, his way of working and, you know, for, I guess for people who don't know, you can do, you know, just go check out his stuff. But he was, you know, he was very, you know, they call him a maverick filmmaker in the sense that he worked outside the system. He was like, he would work jobs as an actor to finance these films that he would produce on his own, you know, and have his friend star in it, his wife star in it. And, uh, he just made a series of family home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, he just made these films. Like he just wanted to be able to have super long takes, like super exploratory, you know, they almost feel improvised, but they're not improvised films. They're actually really tightly scripted, but the acting is just so, it's just, you know, so raw and real and interesting. Um, and a lot of the stuff that he's he's dealing with, like the relationships between men and women and families, and I just don't know. I just was very uh, super impressed and with him. So yeah, the song is basically just a you know it, it's sort of like a tip of the hat, but also kind of like talking about his uh, you know. I think I've said this before, but I mean I think a lot of times people would look at our band and talk about you know oh they don't do this, they don't do that, and it's always this kind of. Uh, it's like a negative image, you know, they just see this negative image where it's always like they refuse to do this. They refuse oh, to do you're, that. You're and they cutting don't see... out a little bit. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry. But there's like a lot of like people would be discussing, um, you know, the band's policies in, the, in as a negative image instead of seeing the positive aspects of what that of the freedoms that that allowed us. And that's the thing with Cassavetes. Like you could look at it and be like, oh, it's, you know, what a pity that he had to like, you know, self-finance and work outside the system in this way. It must have been so hard, but not not recognizing the, the creative benefits of operating that way. So I guess that's, you know, one thing I wanted to, to put into the song. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. And, I mean, such moving work. So, yeah. This might be, is this the first record I, I'm trying to think. This is the first record where you guys start using film is a metaphor quite a bit. Because then the next, we got walk-in syndrome. Yeah, I don't, it wasn't intentional, but I guess I think that is probably uh, something that, that I didn't notice at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't like supposed to be some kind of cinematic concept record, but there is, there is that strain. <laughs> there is that strain in the, uh, between those, those, those songs, I guess. Um, I mean, walk syndrome isn't about, isn't about, there's a, you know, Andy Hall has a, you know, famous scene where Christopher Walken talks about steering a car into headlights while he's driving. And the song is not about the film, but the the song existed before I had a title, but then the title matched the the material of the song in a way that I thought was kind of interesting, and so I just I used it. But in a way, it's like a red herring because it's not it's not like I saw that movie and I was like, oh, I'll write a song about that. It has it had nothing to yeah, do with that. You're not writing about Christopher Walken. No, 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 no. It's a kind of a it was a it's a what is the word? Um, it's a conflation of two incidents that happened uh, to me on a stretch of road, like where I, I, I had been driving home really late at night from a friend's house and I was at a uh, red light on Rock Creek Parkway, right on the Potomac, right near the Kennedy center. And, uh, it was like four in the morning or something. And I just fell asleep in the car at the, at the light. And I woke up and I don't know how long I was asleep and the sun was coming up over the Potomac and I was just sitting there with my foot on the brake and I had no idea how long I'd been there. And then it it was it was like 250 feet from uh, part of the road, the same road where when I was younger, my mother had been in a really catastrophic car accident, and it was weird to wake up from that light and then drive past that spot and on my way home. So the song is like a reflection on this, the you know you know basically about about that. Yeah, wow, that's pretty wild. I my I had similar uh, experience. Not myself falling asleep, but my mother fell asleep and uh, ran into a tree. And it was it was always be weird driving past that spot too. Yeah, it's funny. I was in a lot of car accidents in D.C. and I like every time I go back there now, I'm like, oh yeah, here's the the corner of Reno and uh, Calvert Street Everywhere. where that woman T-boned me and almost killed me. And here's the spot where my cruise control malfunctioned and I shot out and I almost shot through a Safeway, uh, you know, play glass window. I had all these crazy car accidents that happened like uh, kind of, you know, one after the other. But um, so yeah, it's weird. DC is like that for me. It's like, I go back to Washington and it's just like, it's what's weird when you go, but when you move away from your hometown, like, and then you go back and it's like, there's, it's like a, every place you go is this emotional map, you know, like of, things that have happened to you or moments that you, you just can't see it the same. You know, it's like when you live there, it's almost like you're 
so in the quotidian nature of being in that city. But when you have that distance and you come back, it's alive again in a really peculiar way. And it's almost like there's like, there's an emotional know, like, history there. Yeah, the emotional history and these miasmas of these ghosts that are just all over the place on it, you know, and it's like, it's it's very much like that for me. And this song is was sort of like that in miniature, you know, this, uh, like that, yeah. yeah. I'm feeling bad that I didn't give you something on Rendit, man, but I got to say, like, if I, I'm just looking at the lyrics now and, like, like the, the last line, my, my love song went wrong, that's basically, in a nutshell, the song, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's enough. That's a, yeah. that's a good good way to put it. So then uh, I love ending on Last Chance for a Slow Dance. That's a, a really strong song and strong uh, way to end this record. It's wild that you said that started as a Righteous Spring riff. Yeah, in a different way, yeah. I could have easily seen that riff with with more, a funkier beat being one of the uh, uh, happy-go-lucky riffs or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was like in the when it was the right to, when it was used in the rights of spring thing, it was like much faster, you know, and like more blurred and less picked or whatever. And then this one is like more of a, it's it's I made it like a circular round, you know, a picking round out of the out of the cording or whatever. So it it changed quite a bit, but it was like I was really really happy to find a successful use of that, you know, because I, it just was like you know you have these things when you pick up a guitar that you just automatically mm -hmm. like there's Always. things to this day that i play that have never become songs and it's so irritating in a way because it's like it's just you know your hands just gravitate to them and so my hands always gravitated to those notes so i was just so relieved to find a a landing place and then when i found the chorus and then you know worked it out with the band i mean to me like one of the most beautiful parts of the song is the very very ending you know when the it's just the guitars and the bass playing these simple two note patterns together and there's no drums you know so it's like free floating and we're just looking at each other and and counting it in in real time on the recording i just find it very uh it, it's something that, that you know I, I don't i can't really listen to our stuff that much but when i heard that today i just felt this it just really there's something really satisfying to me about and it reminds me so much of like playing it live and just being, being so, so locked, locked into, into the, the groove, groove that, that we're able to, to navigate that that's the starkness of the ending together it's like it always made me really happy well and there's something that feels and this of course my interpretation by ending and ending on that uh that type of riff at the end of the record there's this kernel of uh hope and determination whereas you know the overall vibe of the record to me feels like a weary kind of anger not like a you know, rally and cry per se, but it feels very like still determined, but a little like it has a, uh, I don't want to say beaten down because it doesn't feel defeated by any means. It, it just feels very like heavy, the record does. So it's nice to end on this, this kind of note, like literally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the song is very, it's a very sad song. It has some, some of my, like, I mean, there's some lyrics in there that to me are some of my favorite things that I wrote. I think the flare fakes a flower line to me. I've always really liked that. And there's like things in there that I, I, I was very, very happy with. Yeah. And it was, again, it was like the, one of those songs that was nice to be able to work into the show, you know, as a, as a, as, as something different, as a different, you know, with a different uh, kind of 
cadence and pace and just space to it. So um, that was nice. I mean, but you know, when you're talking about like the overall, the feeling of the record, I was trying to remember, you know, that era in DC and that time. I mean, when I'm thinking about the song instrument, for example, like, I mean, you know, Ian wrote the, obviously wrote the lyrics to that, but it reminded me like that era was really intense in Washington. That period of time, there was so much violence in the city and, you know, there was so much like uh, anecdotal violence of just like, you know, living in Mount Pleasant. And like, you know, I remember parking my car and seeing someone pulled out of a, out of a different car and like shot in the legs and like dumped in the street. And like, just like, there was this sense of just really intense sense of the city being just, just, just really, really in, uh, in crisis, you know? And, uh, and, you know, to me, that's one of Ian's most beautiful songs and the, the, you know, we need an instrument to find what loss could weigh. I mean, such a heavy, heavy concept. I mean, I think there's a lot of songs on, on this record where Ian wrote, you know, just single lines that I, I think about all the time, you know, that I think have really, and that's one of them, you know, it's just a very, there was a sense of, uh, the mortality, how embattled whole, you know, like in the, the racial embattlement in the city. And, uh, it was just a kind of very, very intense at that period of time. And, and this feeling that, that there was in some sense, like, a, like, uh, like the, the poor black population of the city had just been ridden off in such a, you know, a, a grotesque way, you know, so painful and such a weird time to be in there, you know, and like, and I, so I think that song was really important and there was a, but yeah, I think that there was a lot of stuff. I mean, when I think about steady dive, nothing there, like the political, uh, you know, the right around the time of the first Gulf war and stuff, there was just a lot of stuff that was happening politically that I, I've always feel like, um, when I listen to the records, I can remember kind of almost like, uh, the political kind of in emotional context of what it was, the, what those things were like. And when I listen to this record today, it kind of reminded me a lot of that era in Washington and what that was like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, like I said, the, the record definitely has a weight to it. It's not depressing. It's not defeatist, but it, it's heavy. Yeah. You know, I don't remember, I don't think it was you. One of the other guys was saying about how in, I think it was, it must've been that tour, the European tour when you guys first heard about the whole Nirvana blowing up and all that. And then, like you said, this album, going into the charts unexpectedly, et cetera, et cetera. Like, on one hand, you've got this city in crisis, and on the other, this underground all of a sudden getting a spotlight on it, like a, a harsh spotlight. It must have really been strange time to navigate. Did you guys have, uh, or had you already, did you have, have discussions about how to continue knowing that you're going to have to scale up, you know, to do it with, where you felt good about it and with integrity versus otherwise? Um, I don't think we ever really, we didn't have like a, we didn't talk about it in the sense of like, you know, because what was weird about it was like, we were able to, it's like, it was, everything was kind of incremental in a way. So it's like, we were figuring out how to go forward. I mean, the only thing that we knew was that we didn't want to change the way we operated just to accommodate the scale. So we had to figure out a way to make it work without, you know, without having to, to really change anything that we were doing. So it became like, you know, all right, can we find people who are willing to work with us in this way? 
you would have to. Oh, sorry. Because I, I, you would have to find folks willing to put you on for the same price point in the same uh, under the same conditions, but in much larger places. I mean, otherwise you'd have to do multiple multiple day runs in in the same venue, which would be hard to do over and over again. Right. So we had to we had to really look at it. We'd look at the bottom line. So we we're like, okay, what costs money? The the lights. Let's bring our own lights. Let's just buy some lights. Mm. Let's bring our own PA. You know, we just economized on everything. We'd look at the we'd look at the what the contract said or whatever the you know venue wanted to do, and we just were like, we don't need this. We don't need that. We don't need you know. You don't have to spend money on that. We don't care about it. You know. Oftentimes we were playing shows where the barricade made more money than we did. You know, like when the shows got bigger, that was one thing that we really struggled with is like, we did not want to have security. We did not want to have barricades. But then one of the big problems with, with the huge, you know, year that punk broke nonsense was that the venues didn't feel like they could get away with doing that. You know, there was so much fear of litigation. There was so much fear of people getting hurt. So you were kind of this infrastructure of the security infrastructure was being forced down our throats because the clubs were too scared to deal with it. And, you know, that's why we tried to find, you know, non-rock venues to play. So, you know, we would try to find, you know, warehouses or other kinds of spaces where people, you know, and sometimes it was a, I will say this, like sometimes it was a drag. Like we'd end up in places that should not have shows. They sounded terrible. They were, the PA was too small for the scale of the room. You know, we made, it wasn't always perfect. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it wasn't like we dialed it in and it was just a fucking huge victory lap. It was like, a lot of times we were in spaces and it was, it just didn't come together, but we were, we made it, we made it work and we kept trying and we were willing to do what had to be done in order to make it fly. And, and we were lucky that we found promoters who were on board with it. You know, people who were like, yes, they took it on as a challenge, you know, particularly kids who'd been doing the smaller shows and they were like, let me see if I can figure this out. Or like, you know, in places like Los Angeles where you could play a huge room like the Palladium and they would just make it work. A lot of times we were doing benefits. Like I think on the, in this year we were doing uh, benefits for Rock for Choice um, at the Palladium. So that was a different kind of, uh, you know, different kind of mechanism in order to make that kind of show work. There was lots of different ways to approach it. But, I you know, I don't remember a whole lot of like agonizing about like I said, like our lives didn't change on the inside hardly at all. And in terms of the work, we just looked at it as like, okay, we're going to just, you know, figure this out and go keep going. And I just don't remember a lot I mean, there, of... There had to be a, a certain, on the days when it wasn't a headache, there had to be a certain element of adventure to making that work, to being like, oh, wow, we're going to play this kind of show that's not really been done before in this place that's not had it before, like, there had to be oh, a yeah. I mean, sometimes it was just unbelievably great. I mean, it just was, it was awesome. I mean, the thing about it, that's, it was one of two things with us, you know, it's like some nights you were really, really worried about people getting hurt, like really, really worried. Like the scale of the show was out of control. Like there was like, we were trying to manage it. And sometimes it was, you know, for some bands, I guess, you know, you just don't pay that much attention and you just play the show and you just hope for the best or whatever. But we just were really in tune with the crowd and trying to make sure that people were taken care of. So that was stressful. But on the nights where it worked on the nights where the room, like where we could find that unity in the room or we could, you know, all of this stuff, all of the headache aspect of it was just, 
melted away because of the, it was functioning and we were playing and the music was working in the room and it was happening, you know? So, um, yeah, you know, it was, I just, I don't know. It was, it was, I think people think that there was like, oh my God, you know, did it just feel like you had to immediately just like, you know, I think there was at some point, not maybe not this time, but at some point uh, in the next years or so, I think at one point Ian asked, got someone to help him book the shows. And we did that maybe as an experiment for one or two tours. And then we realized it doesn't really work. You know, Ian really needed to do it because there were just too many factors that were important to us that normal people just weren't paying attention to or just didn't care about. You know, it's like Ian was just really, I mean, one of the great, great, things about being in a band with Ian is that the guy really knows how to do that part of the job better than anyone on earth that I've ever met. He knows how to talk to people. He knows how to make sure that they know that we're not fucking around about all ages. He knows that they know that we're not fucking around about the door price. We're not fucking around about all this stuff. And he managed to just really, really painstakingly uh, manage the touring life of the band. And it was remarkable what he did. You know, for some reason, the all ages thing really is hard to make people take seriously. They're just like, they don't really mean that, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. Or like, it doesn't really seem like a big deal. I was like, oh, is, well, you know, they just have to be 17 or over. It's like, they don't understand what the all ages part means, you know? So it's like, so that part was, you know, he was, he just was just really good at speaking the language of those people, but also making them understand what we, where we were coming from and what we needed in order for the show to happen. So he was able to deal with kids who were doing it for the first time. And he was able to do it with people who had been in the business for 45 years. You know, he was able to navigate both of those things. And it's not a coincidence that the band that I was in with Ian was the band that was able to tour like this, because like, I'm not a person who can do that stuff, you know? (laughs) So (laughs) I would never be, I mean, I mean, I could, I mean, I, but it was, it hit his skill set for that kind of organizational stuff. And for that kind of, uh, dialoguing with people is infinitely above anything that I could do. So it was a, a, a major, major reason for the band to be able to function the way it did was that we had, had him kind of running that managerial tour managing kind of role for us you know it's like everyone in the band had different things that they did and and but he really had that lion's share job of making that part of it work so there was not one decision that the band ever made that we didn't make in common like we did have meetings where we would sit down and you know break stuff down and decide what we were willing or not willing to do but it wasn't an enormous amount of talk you know because there wasn't really that much to say after a certain point like we all were on the same page And we knew that, you know, I think there was some frustration sometimes when the shows, you know, like the joy of playing shows for me is so fundamental in terms of like how much I just, how much I loved it. And when it did get bigger, it's like, you have to reorient yourself in terms of like, how do you, you know, it's, it's really like, how do you work those rooms in a way where you still are getting your expression out, you know, you're able to, to work it. And I think that it was something that, you know, this was around this time that we were, we were learning how to do and in a satisfying way and it stayed satisfying and that's a miracle. That is, I mean, that's that huge chasm of going from the immediacy of playing these small rooms 
with people right in your face and, you know, being able to look at everybody in the eye, you know, and vice versa to, uh, you know, like you said, these huge stages where you just see these thousands and thousands of people. I can't even imagine. I think what we did was we internalized the energy. Whereas before we were pulling a lot from the crowd, by this point we were pulling more from each other. And mm. we were. this is when we started to become more improvisational in our playing because we needed to find freedom in that space. Like we, the, it was like the keyest, like the truest value of the band was a sonic freedom and a kind of free fall nature to the show. And I think the bigger the shows got, the more we committed to that stuff. So it wasn't about like committing to designing a set of all the hits. It was about <laughs> designing a musical experience where we could find more language in terms of playing language with each other. And that's what happened. And it made it awesome for us because we, we started to just, and I think also it happened with me, particularly on guitar. I think I, when I see like, listen to like my first attempts to play guitar in, in this band, it was, it really took me a while to get it together. Like I played guitar in other bands, but this was really different. And particularly with the, the amount of shows we were playing and harnessing the adrenaline and all that, there was a real learning curve for me. And I think it settled in around this time where I started to feel much, much more confident in terms of being able to play the guitar on stage the way I want, with the same kind of freedom that I could commit to, to being a vocalist on stage. And it was, it took me a while to get there. And once I, once I was able to play with that kind of freedom, it really changed things for me enormously in terms of just being a musician, you know, in a different way. Yeah. So I think it took me a long time. I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm slow, you know, it took me a lot of time to figure out how to do certain things that maybe for other people were maybe more uh, natural. Yeah. I mean, it, I, you know, I think it, it was a process, you know, there was certainly like it started on repeater for sure. And then with each record. So I think it was easier in the practice space, but it was sometimes harder for me live because there's so much, um, it really, for me is about like, it was just about, it was just about learning physically how to, you know, control, control the adrenaline for me it was really, really difficult to do and play. And I think at a certain point I, I, I figured out how to do it and it made a, it made a big difference. And I just think that I think a lot of times when bands like have that issue of like when things get bigger or they become more like outwardly successful or whatever, I think what happens is there's a sense of alienation sets in where you no longer recognize yourself. You're like go through some kind of process of not uh, seeing yourself and what you're doing anymore. And I, so I think that that was something that we managed to avoid. It's almost like we doubled down on, on, on making sure that we were, recognizable to ourselves and then and a lot of that had to do with yeah you know the playing and the uh, and that kind of thing where you just you, you i think once you that alienation sets in it's almost it's like a rot you know and then i think that's why bands can't can't maneuver it can't continue
All right. Once again, thanks so much, Gee, uh, return guest. I, you know, I'm always so internally grateful, but it's sometimes surprised if people do uh, want to return for more punishment after being on the show once. And Gee was so generous with his time. You know, I gave him outs many a couple different times of uh, ending the interview, and, and he was just totally up for talking. So that's always so cool. He's he's such a real guy, such a genuine real person and uh, no pretense. Yeah. So that was such an honor. And I'm not going to lie. There's only a few people that get nervous knowing I'm going to talk to. And he's definitely one of them, but he's so disarming in his uh, down to earthness that makes it totally easy. So thank you, Guy. Now it is time, Drew. But before we talk about the usual junk, uh, don't we need to pick our songs for the playlist? Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, that, I'm that's coming. Yeah, but we're about to do that. But I just wanted to briefly mention, you know, every now and then Jeff used to do it, and I don't that often, but I did today about posting on the Discord group and Facebook that you know we're going in the studio, we're going to do the uh, episode tonight, and I just was like, hey, we're doing the end on the kill taker episode. What's your favorite song off this? And what's fascinating is that, you know, obviously there's so many people that love this record and many, many people saying just that and it's hard to pick. But also a lot of people did pick songs, but almost every song is discussed as being people's favorite. It wasn't like, oh, waiting room or oh, whatever, you know, whatever you might say. There was uh some great stories people told about doing covers or this or that or first experience in this record but yeah i mean everything from good cop to uh return the screws sweet and low 23 beats off even uh of course what do you call it your favorite the facet squared cassavetti small you know yeah i mean almost every song except for the one that we thought was okay the the side two gee Walking syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's going to be very hard. I think it's going to be very hard to pick two songs from this album. <laughs> well, you only get to pick one. So that makes it even harder. Although it's my turn to go first. So you get a little out there. But yeah, with that, let's do it. This is for our Spotify and Apple playlist. I Which hope... is called. Yeah. You are the one that don't know. That. <laughs> <laughs> Which is called. The end on end, ever evolving. Wait, Discord, Discord mixtape. Mix is that the whole thing? I feel like, yeah, I think yeah, so. yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> Which has, I know it's over eight hours of music on it already. Uh, I I should check it out again soon. So anyway, we have that playlist, and we add a two songs from a release every single time so this episode oh boy here we go this is gonna be a hard one like you said and i have to go first so and on the kill taker i am gonna choose oh my god it's almost like you want to choose one from side one and one from side two that'd make it a little easier so for me candidates are as follows Returning the Screw, although I don't think I'll choose it now that I think about it. But Smallpox Champion, that's up there. Rendit's up there. 
23 beats off is kind of a strange choice to choose, but that's even up there. God damn the dark it. Dark Horse for sure. Yeah, it would be the Dark Horse. You're right. But it's a it's a it's a very good dark horse. I I thought mm -hmm. about choosing that one. Yeah. Uh instrument is amazing. Last chance is a great one. Man. And it kind of depends. Like if you chose first, it would help me would have helped me decide what type of song to choose. So without that without that crutch, I'm gonna narrow it down to this this and I gotta edit this is taking too long scintillating uh, i know this is right amazing here. listening i'm sure <laughs> okay i'm gonna oof. so for me it's between smallpox and instrument and last chance those are all so mm. hard to choose one i well okay. i feel like you want to choose a gi song because you know you you were stopping hard for the gi songs on this I, record yeah i mean I don't like to pit them against each other. It's not fair, but he's definitely the star of this this show for me. But for me, smallpox or instrument, damn it. That's what I narrowed it down to. And do I have to choose one? I do. Uh, I'm going to go smallpox champion. That's, that's my final choice. Excellent choice. I'm kind of surprised you didn't talk about Rendit as a as a candidate. It it's I know I <laughs> I saw it and thought about saying that or too. Or like, I mean, Cassavetes. I know that's like true. It is, and it's it's so creative. I know uh, all all the above. I know it's hard. Well, I think since you chose a Gi song, I have to do the Fugazi thing and choose yep, the end song. There you go. So that helps me narrow it down. <laughs> it won't be returning the screw. I almost said that one too. <laughs> um, great cop, I think, is fantastic, but I also think we can rule that one out. As... I know it, it's great, but it's 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 almost too. It's derivative of of the yeah. Earlier it's work. a look back. That's why I didn't um, choose. That's why I didn't choose instrument. I love instrument, but I was yeah. I don't know. Right, yeah, and I think instrument. I think they do it better on long distance runner. I think they write a similar song on long distance runner uh -huh. that for me is one of the great, great, great songs. So I can rule that one out, which <laughs> between 23 beats off and facet squared. Oh no. <laughs> and I think I'll go with uh, 23 beats off because oh, it's, wow. it's, uh, it, it's a little bit varied in terms of it's uh it's a little bit, it's a slower song. It has more dynamic range. I mean, facet squared is my favorite song on this album, but in the, in the name of the exercise, I'm going to go with 23 beats off. Okay. Wow. I'm surprised and uh, elated. That's cool. And we got to put that second, obviously. That'd be yeah. funny to start with that, then go to... Yeah, you can't, you can't put Facet Squared second. <laughs> it's got to be the leadoff or it's got to be nothing at all. So, yeah. Cool, cool. I like that. Uh, we'll, we'll see what uh, Mr. Kaplan has to say about... <laughs> I'm sure he's going to tell us... <laughs> that we're crazy. Terms yeah, that yeah. we're nuts. Exactly. To, to put it into family-friendly terms, we'll say that... <laughs> Uh, so yeah, everyone knows we got we got a Patreon. We never do ads. We're like Discord. We don't do that shit. Never will. It's not part of punk in my view of things. And Patreon is just a, you know, I'm not gonna flog it. I love the community that I've met here, including yourself, Drew. That's that's how I got to know you. Uh, but you know, if you want to help support the show, check it out. We do a lot of things get some perks but 
you know, you don't have to. I'm just happy anybody's paying attention and checking this thing out. So having said that, man, we made it. We did it, Drew. It's it always feels like a <laughs> it always feels like a uh, the end of end of a marathon. Speaking of runner, long distance Fugazi runner. episodes, especially this is my first yeah. Fugazi episode as a, yeah. as a co-host and it, it's it's, it's it, yeah exactly exactly daunting's the right word because there's such a not just fan base but there's such a heaviness to their place in the musical canon, much less the Discord canon. So yeah. So, Drew, what do we got going on next time? All right. So, coming up next, we have Discord 71, Nation of Ulysses, plays pretty for baby. Wow. This is a one, two, three punch right here, man. Chowbox, Bukazi yeah. Nation. The, yeah, man, I Coltrane, can't wait. Coltrane quoting stew of <laughs> references. Hipster kid. Hipster. Yeah. Hipster, hipster revolutionaries yeah mod revolutionary soviet futurist free jazz <laughs> sound of punk rock to come exactly all right so stay tuned for that we will definitely have a interview we'll see who and man we made it i feel like i need a vacation after doing this <laughs> yeah, especially so after tired. editing this episode i'm sure <laughs> all right yeah. good talking to you drew and thanks everyone Ye, do what you do. Yes! Yeah.